Hey, welcome to Friday Night School, Friday Afternoon Night School. You know, I had a thought this morning. I, I realized that I had censored myself yesterday. Actually, I realized I made an error. I had mentioned how the later, the version of Mother by Danzig that became popular, I mentioned that I thought it was on uh, Black Acid Devil, but I meant Thrall Demon Sweat Live. I've always confused those two titles. They're just big block words of Black Acid Devil, Thrall Demon Sweat Live. Anyway. I just want to acknowledge that mistake. That's what's important. I'm willing to make mistakes about any number of much more important things. I'm willing to make a mistake about something that's like crucial to life. But God forbid I say that a Danzig song was on the wrong album, because then you're going to think I'm a poser. People not thinking I'm a poser is way more important than world issues. But you know what? A lot of people feel that way. <laughs> I don't think I'm alone. I think a lot of people are more worried that someone is going to think they're a poser. You know, and that's and that's where a lot of people's attitudes, you know, a lot of the things that people express about the world. A lot of people who are very politically vocal. What they're communicating underneath all of that is I really really don't want you to think I'm a, a poser. You know, I've heard I was listening to Adam Carolla and, you know, just saying that makes it sound like I'm an Adam Carolla fan. Like, I this show, I realize this show is just filled with me qualifying my own statements constantly. But I guess when it comes to taste, I, I'm, <laughs> I, 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 don't, I want you to think I'm a poser. Um, but Adam Carolla was saying something about how, like, every And this is something I've heard from many people, but they're like, no, no, you know what? It wasn't. It wasn't Adam Carolla. It was Howie Mandel. This is what happens when, like, because I don't, I, I never watch Howie Mandel or Adam Carolla. Like those guys don't enter my my life ever. But I did w recently watch interviews with both of them, and I like both those guys actually. Like I don't pay attention to them. Like I'm not a fan of them. But like I find for big celebrities, you know, I, I always end up thinking, huh, he seems like a decent guy. Uh, but Howie Mandel was saying. Like the reason he got into comedy, the reason he, he's a performer is because he just he wanted people to love him. And he was on this podcast and it was actually very funny because he was he was saying he's like, even right now, me being here on this podcast, I'm thinking I really want the person listening to love me. <laughs> and I was like, you know what? That, you know, I, I wouldn't say I take that approach with my show. But I mean, that's true. I mean, like so much of what we do, no matter how, how you want to say that, like you could say that in any, any number of different ways, but it's like, it's funny that Howie Mandel being this ultra celebrity, being this person who, you know, you can't really get much more famous than him, that he's sitting there saying like, even right now, just on this off the cuff podcast where we're just goofing off that I'm still thinking, I really want whoever hears this to love me. But I would say my version of that is just, I don't want you to think I'm a poser. <laughs> and I was never worried about that growing up. That's the funny thing is like, I wasn't consciously worried about that as a teenager or anything, but like, and I joke around about it, but on some level, that is probably my biggest concern as far as like how somebody perceives me. Not that it's like an insecurity that rules my life, but like when it comes down to like, how do you want someone to perceive you? It's like, I, I mean, because what that is, honestly, the other way to phrase it, it's not, 
oh, uh, I just really don't want people to think I'm a poser. What it is, is like, I want people to know I'm being honest or as honest as I can possibly be. You know, we all pull things one way or another. We all exaggerate intentionally or not. But like what I'm saying is like, it all comes down to honesty. Like that's like, I totally understand what Howie Mandel's saying. And a lot of people say that where it's like, they just want people to love them. And they usually use this kind of psych 101 backstory where it's like, oh, well, I didn't get enough attention at home. And I was always trying to entertain my parents to get their love. And that's why I became a comedian or an actor, because I just want people's love. This is a, a coping mechanism I learned in order to get love. Like, I don't relate to that. You know, I always felt loved as a kid and, and everything. But I, I, I would say that my version of that is just like, I really hope people think I'm being honest. I hope they know I'm being honest or as honest as I can be. But that was just a funny thought. You know, the idea of like, I hope people don't think this. And like, even just the, the honestly, like when I real after I released that episode and I realized that I, I said the re the, the later version of mother was on a, a, the wrong album. Like it honestly made my skin crawl. It made my gut churn and I laughed about it. You know, I know it's not important, but it's still one of those things. It's funny that that, whereas you could say, oh, you got this, this, you said something about Joe Obama, bin Biden or Afghan, the stand of Afghani, and you were wrong about that. I wouldn't care. I'd be like, oh, well, I don't need to, I don't need to retract anything. I guess part of that too is like you want, if it's something that you are passionate about, it's that much more painful when you're wrong. Because like Danzig, for example, the reason I think like that eats me up more, like making a mistake about a Danzig song, because like I, I'm a self-professed fan and I don't know everything, you know, I don't study it, but it's like I still, I feel like I myself think that I should know that, that I should get that right. Whereas if you're listening to this show or I'm listening to myself uh, talk about Afghanistan, Stan of Afghani, there's no presumption that I know what I'm, I'm talking about. And if you're coming to me for information on the stand of Afghani or, or anything political, honestly, anything that involves larger world events, if you're coming to me for that, well, thank you. Maybe I should become an expert. But no, if you're coming to me for that, I think you know what's up. I think you know I'm just rambling and riffing and I try to get it right, but it's not my my own identity doesn't require me to to perf- to have perfect information about what's going on in the middle east but anyway getting back to like what i said initially which was i realized that i also censored myself and i was talking about how a friend of mine called me yesterday morning and he he was at the doctor waiting to get tested for coronavirus And he'd been like going about his life, just not feeling very good for a few days. And I specifically didn't name him. He lives on the East Coast and I specifically didn't name him. And I don't think I would have anyway, like even without any kind of like political implication, I don't think I would have named him anyway, because I'm talking about somebody's medical business. I'm talking about somebody's own. I'm respecting HIPAA laws, even though I myself am not a doctor. I think as a general rule, it's good to respect people's, you know, medical knowledge, especially if they share it with you as a friend. I mean, that's something you don't share. So on one hand, I, I wouldn't have named him probably because of that. Although somehow what's, what's really interesting about coronavirus is that it doesn't feel like 
and maybe this is because of the public and political focus on it, but it doesn't feel like talking about other medical issues. Like when you say that somebody had coronavi, it feels a lot different than some than saying someone even had the flu or had cancer or broke their leg or had any other number of health issues. And maybe that's the way it's it's been it's interesting because it's it's this illness that's been framed as I mean, the public interest in it, I don't need to explain that. I mean, from the very beginning, the, the nature of a pandemic makes this specific illness relevant to the greater public. Like, it, it, it gives both the publicity itself that coronavirus has gotten, but just the fact that, like, everybody is supposed to be concerned about coronavirus at all times and not just concerned about it as far as they go, as far as their own family goes, but also concerned about what people on the other side of the world are doing. Like the amount of attention that people are giving to like what's happening in other countries. Like there are people who are spending all their time like studying the rates, all of this data, all of these anecdotes about what's happening in other countries regarding coronavirus. So it's not just public, it's like true globalism, you know. It's And I, when I say globalism, I don't even mean it just to be negative. I think there are a lot of negative characteristics to globalism, but also positive. And it's, I think it's also unavoidable to some degree. You know, an anti-globalist mindset would have said, hey, don't, yeah, don't, don't sail that ship there. Don't sail that ship there. What do you need to sail a ship? It's fine here. Everything's fine here. You don't need to go travel over there. You know, we would be missing a lot if, if we, I, I don't think we can avoid it. I don't think we can avoid traveling and expanding our horizons but there are obviously negative characteristics but I just want to point out that when I say globalism I'm not saying that as a pejorative I'm just talking about it as a fact and if somebody doesn't think we live in a globalist world uh, I don't know I mean I, I would disagree with you let's put it that way and proof of that to me you know and there's there's endless proof of it but you know just one example is just the interest that people have taken in all of these minute, minute details in other countries during the last year and a half, where they're just studying other countries. People who aren't scientists, people who aren't going to use this, they're not going to publish this. They're not going to write an article about it. They're, these are just everyday citizens who are spending all their time studying the rates, trying to become experts. But it's become, point being, it's become of great public interest, this, this particular illness. I mean, that's the understatement of the year, that coronavirus is of great public interest. But with that, it, it has become so heavily politicized. And I think it's easy to forget that coronavirus is still somebody's private business. Like if somebody gets it, yeah, they should tell people who they know who are around them. But they're under no obligation to mention it beyond that. And they're under no obligation, in my opinion, to do anything about it. They should avoid people, yes. But people aren't obligated to get a vaccine. People aren't obligated to follow any number of other rituals, in my opinion. I wear a mask, like, you know, when it's required. I, I got the vaccine. I'm a vacker. I've already said that. If I say it too many times, I'll become one of those people. I might as well get a sticker. Might as well get a back patch. 
Make it, you can practically see that. I, I wouldn't be shocked if that exists. I wouldn't be shocked if some Etsy store made some back patch. It's like some crust band. It's like it's like a parody of some crust band's logo. But it says vac vaccinated. I don't know. Stupid. I don't know. Um, but I wouldn't be shocking at all. I would not be shocked if I saw somebody wearing merchandise that says they've been vacked. But it's just all this stuff. We think that because this, because of the pandemic has such a global public nature, as it should, we have this tendency to think that the public can take an interest in every individual's relationship to this coroni. And, uh, you know, that's, I, I don't believe that to be the case. But anyway, just with my friend, it was like, it's not just that I didn't believe in sharing his name, because really it's nobody's business what some, you know, whether somebody I know or not has coroni. And it turns out he does have it. He, you know, he's not feeling terribly bad last I checked, so that's good. But it's also that that could actually put him on someone's radar, and it wouldn't. Like, I mean, when you think about the reality of this, this is an incredibly obscure show. And I referenced him buried in a two and a half hour episode after doing hours and hours of marathon episodes in the last few days. The chances that naming his first name and location and the fact that he has coronavi or was getting tested for coronavi, the reality of that, like I'm not so paranoid to think that somebody's just sitting there waiting and they're going to go harass my friend or anything. But I think it's good to exercise caution in that regard. And in part because of like what I said about Australia, the fact that they're showing surveillance footage of a guy who left his apartment with coronavi, the fact that they're showing teenagers handcuffed on the beach for violating these new sanctions against going out in public. You know, it's like we aren't far like, like when reactionaries in the U.S. say we're not far from that. They're not wrong. We're not far from that. I mean, it all seems very sudden in Australia. Like I, I haven't because I'm not a globalist stooge, I wasn't paying that close of attention to Australia's coronavi rules. I have to imagine they were probably a little more firm than ours, maybe a lot more firm. But at some point they seem to have just gone off the cliff. And I don't know how you can argue otherwise. Like even if you support what Australia's doing, you have to admit that it's drastic. And, and I mean, sometimes drastic measures are necessary, but you have to be willing to admit that what's going on in Australia is a drastic measure for a free Western culture, a supposedly free, oh, quote-unquote freedom. That's what my Hot Topic shirt says. I'm gonna, in addition to designing a back patch that says, it's like going to be the, the Aus Rotten logo or something, but it says vaccinated, anti-vac, I don't know. But I'm also going to make a T-shirt that says freedom in quotes. It's gonna, and I'm going to sell it at Hot Topic. But yeah, just exercising caution where it's like, yeah, you know what? I'm not going to even just name that friend's first name. And I don't know how people feel about me mentioning them on this show. I've had people actually be flattered. I don't think I've ever heard anybody say, how dare you? I imagine most people never even heard it, but... 
I've only ever had people be like, oh, you mentioned me. Even a girl I dated years ago, like the girl I visited in, in Korea, I talked about her quite candidly. I didn't name her, but I talked about her quite candidly. She ended up hearing it and contacted me, but she was like, it's cool. Like, you know, you didn't say anything that bad about me. <laughs> so that was that's always nice. It's always nice when you get that feedback. But anyway, just exercising caution, though, about like naming somebody who wasn't vaccinated and got coronavirus because it's like, you just never know what kind of scrutiny someone's going to be under. And yeah, like the chances of that, the chances of a first name of somebody that nobody else who listens to this show knows, like, I'm not so paranoid to think that anybody listening to this is just like, hmm, I'm going to take notes. He has a friend named this who has coronavirus over here and is unvaccinated. I'm going to look into this. But it's just, I think it's good to, to start out exercising caution. Like, even if things don't get that way here, even if we don't end up in Australia, I think it's good to kind of just, with the way things are going, with what we're seeing, don't mention it. And that's, you know, a form of censorship, I guess, but I think it's also about respect. It's also just, I think it's the smart thing to do. But that was a moment, like when I realized that, where I was like, oh yeah, you know, I'm actually concerned about publicly mentioning somebody who was unvaccinated and got coroni. I'm, I'm actually... I have reservations about mentioning that. And that was kind of a light bulb moment for me. Because you often don't realize when you're making concessions or, or when you're making strategic decisions, like sometimes you just start doing them or you, you don't entirely know why you're doing them. And then if you actually think about it, you're like, oh, I'm doing it. It's, it's almost like, uh, I don't know. I imagine like somebody <laughs> in an abusive situation goes through that where it's like, you know, somebody, somebody's like, their significant other gets mad at them. Like a woman's husband gets mad at her, you know, when she, uh, I don't know. I, I, I think you can imagine a scenario where it's like somebody gets mad at somebody for doing something and then they, it's, but it's really unimportant. And then they, they, so they stop doing it to make that person happy. And then they realize at some point, holy shit, like I'm making this concession I'm modifying my behavior because I'm afraid of this outcome, but that outcome itself is unfair. And, and people do that with just theoretical outcomes, and that's what I was doing. And I mean, enough analysis of this, but just it's interesting that my mind even went there. And I've had a couple moments like that politically, because that's a political issue. It really doesn't even matter. Like you could, you could change out the, the coronavirus, the getting tested for coronavirus, scenario out of that situation and I could just be talking about my friend doing any number of things that have become politically questionable to a certain group of people in this case the people with power the people with cultural power but you could change out coronavirus with anything and just the fact that I realized that oh I'm modifying what I say I'm modifying what I do and I'm probably doing that in all kinds of different ways Part of that is just socialization. You know, we don't say everything. And when we do say things, sometimes we don't include all of the information. But just interesting. I mean, it's kind of like another moment I had, like when I, during my infamous Facebook free speech argument that I had with a bunch of people, really only a couple people were legitimately arguing with me. But uh, 
it was like right after January 6th, so everybody was just out of their minds, including me. I mean, the fact that I was even doing that, I mean, it, I don't remember the last time, if ever, that I got into like some all-night Facebook back-and-forth argument with anybody. I don't ever remember doing that. Uh, but that just shows you how, I mean, I was in hysterics as well. But how like this this friend that I used to hang out with a lot said to me, like, you know, we, I, we haven't seen you in a couple years you know, since I quit drinking, basically, but, you know, we haven't seen you in a couple years, and just, we, we're hearing all these stories about radicalization, and QAnon, and, you know, I just want to make sure, and that's so condescending, and this guy's a nice guy, that's a thing, I think he's a, he's a really sweet human being, but, and I'm not holding on to that as a, I'm not holding that against him, but I can't let go of it either because it was just a moment where it was like, you know, we hear these stories. It's like, who do you think I am? Like, like it's, I understand you might not know all of me and, you know, it's, I understand that. I understand that, like, I don't always make it easy for people to know what I'm all about. But it's just, I, I look back on that and, like, he and I resolved the argument. You know, and, and it was nice. Like, we were able to resolve the... Because like, the thing is, when you're arguing with somebody, if you both have the intention of resolving the argument, not winning or losing the argument, but when I say resolving, ending the argument on good terms. And even if you're just going through the motions, it's kind of like after a football game when they have you shake hands or do high fives with the other teams. You know, it fits in with all the football talk yesterday, where after every single game in youth football, we had to walk in a straight line past the other team who was walking toward us in a straight line and we would do these high fives and you could always tell the bad sports because there'd always be a kid who like sometimes kids would hit you they would they would hit your hand really hard other ones would do this really weak thing and like make a face whereas the men we might have been boys but the men showed sportsmanship and camaraderie and they would say like good game and even if you don't feel that like even if it was a heated game just saying it kind of made it a reality. Like just doing that action of slapping their hand and saying good game, even though it's all by rote, just doing that actually kind of resolved the whole, because I mean, a football game is an argument. You know, a football game is this competition. It's, it's a physical argument. And by doing that afterward, it's like you make the, you, you turn, even if you don't feel like being a sportsman, Going through the motions of sportsmanship actually makes you feel more camaraderie and you feel like, okay, those guys aren't so bad. It's like what I've said about grocery store clerks where I learned that if the, when the grocery store clerk asks you how you're doing, if you say, oh, I'm great, and you're not great, you might actually feel better. You might actually leave feeling great. And I know that's silly. I know that's like new thought. I know that's new agey, but... There's some truth to it. It's not like that's a miracle. It's not like it's a miracle cure. But there is something to that. There is something to saying that out loud, just like there is something to showing sportsmanship to a team that you might have been extremely upset with. You might have had a very heated game, but just going through the motions of that sportsmanship. And it's the same thing for an argument. And like when I had this free speech argument with this this friend, I know that we both wanted to resolve it. And so at the end of the argument, when we decided we weren't going to keep going, we, uh, we complimented each other. And that's a way to end an argument. You end up complimenting each other. 
Because, and I'm the kind of person too, where like, I won't argue with somebody if I feel like they're not arguing in good faith. Even if I think what they're saying is insane, it, it again goes back to honesty. Where I, I will, I'm willing to argue with someone if they are being honest. And someone who is being honest doesn't have an agenda, even if they've taken on somebody else's agenda. Like they might be a victim of somebody else's agenda, and they might think that you are a victim of somebody else's agenda. But if they think you're coming from an honest place, placed, if they think you're coming from an honest place, and you think they're coming from an honest place, you can have a good argument. And we're afraid of the word argument. I like the word argument more than debate. Debate makes me think of debate club. Debate makes me think of like rationalists and, you know, philosophy majors. And I don't know. I just, I'm not, he's a good debater. I like the word argument. I like the argument. Argument kind of embodies the chaos of a real argument. Whereas a debate, a debate isn't honest. You think about like debate club, which I think is, I I was not part of debate club. I don't, I don't know if my school even had one just to be clear, but with debate club, it's like you pretend to take on views that you don't have. And that's an amazing exercise. And people should do that. You don't have to join debate club to do that. Um, but it, it isn't a real argument. And it's, it's, it's theater. Debate club is theater. And a lot of debate club kids, like I had a girlfriend who was in her high school debate club, and she was in theater. And I feel like those are the same thing. Um, but uh, with... Uh, Arguing, I like that the word argument to me suggests there's an element of this could go awry at any moment, and it might already be awry, and we have to wrangle it. And I have to not give in. I have to not give in to insults. I have to not give in to, I have to not judge this person. I can't let myself go off the rails, and I can't let this argument go off the rails. But if you both have the intention of resolving it, it's an extremely cathartic feeling to close out a heated argument with, Hey, you're cool, man. Good game. High five. Good game. Even if you don't mean it in that moment, the fact that you sealed the argument off with that might make that a reality. You know, you might actually, you're going to remember that you, even if you, you're not going to remember necessarily, you know, all of the details, but you're going to remember that you argued with somebody and that you at least both made an effort to end it amicably. So this this argument that I had with a friend, you know, it was, uh, it ended amicably, and I, I say this with no ill will, but it was very eye-opening to me. You know, what I said a minute ago about, like, going into an argument and even if the person you're talking to doesn't have an agenda, seeing them as a victim of somebody else's hidden agenda, seeing them as somebody who's been brainwashed, and it just, I don't know, I, I found it disappointing in a way that somebody would think that because they haven't seen me for a couple of years and we live in this politically hysterical climate that, oh, you know, we, we just don't know, you know, we haven't seen you for a couple of years. And, you know, in that span of time, you could have become radicalized. I mean, these are close to his words. We just don't know. You, you know, a lot of people are getting into like Q, QAnon. And, it's, and I have two things to say about that. One is that you must not really know my character, and that maybe that's my fault, but you must not really know my character if, if you think I'm susceptible to brainwashing. 
And I would never be so overconfident to say that I couldn't be brainwashed. I can't. It's my superpower. I can't be brainwashed. I, I don't want people to think I'm a poser and I can't be brainwashed. You know, I would never claim that I'm totally incapable of being brainwashed because I think that's the moment that you make yourself more vulnerable to brainwashing. That's the moment that you step on that rake. It's similar to thinking you're enlightened. You know, I mentioned before how the second that you say, oh, I'm enlightened, your enlightenment crashes through the floor. Whatever so-called enlightenment you had crashes through the floor. It's like an ego death where the second that you acknowledge or become aware of the fact that you've had an ego death, and I believe you can have them, but the second that you acknowledge it or become aware of it, that ego death disappears and your ego blows up into a hot air balloon. Because guess what? Your ego now has something else that it's proud of. Ego death. Because the ego is so strong that it can find the most pride in its own death. Because it knows that to acknowledge ego death actually makes the ego bigger than ever. But it's, it's all kind of the same thing, you know, where it's like if you, if, you, if you go through life thinking, I can't be brainwashed. I'm such a strong individual. Nobody can ever brainwash me. You make yourself very susceptible to the sort of person who knows that you, you know, there's a certain sort of person who knows, <laughs> this is getting really complicated, but there's a certain sort of person out there. And people who are pulling the strings, which, you know, I do believe there are people who exert influence. How that works, I don't know. I'm not part of their secret clubs. I do believe elite people manipulate. They always have. And we find out, like, we find this out about kings and, you know, we find, when this comes out, like, when historians find this historically, we're like, well, yeah, of course, of course the elites, the nobles did that. And then today, though, it's like it rests in this area of conspiracy theory. But there are people who pull strings, whether they're pulling all the strings, probably not. There's, they can't control everything. But, you know, those people are so advanced and good at what they do that they know there is a sort of person going through life thinking, I can't be brainwashed. And so they devise a formula that brainwashes even then because those people are valuable. You know, the sort of person, so I would never pretend that I can't be brainwashed, but it still bothers me that somebody that I hung out with a lot, that I considered a friend, would just default to, oh, because you expressed an opinion on free speech that I don't agree with, we're starting to wonder about you. We're thinking you might have been brainwashed by one of them QAnon, Trumpsfeld cults. That was... Very honestly, very close to what he said. I'm not. I'm using a little bit of hyperbole, but it's very close to what he said. And so it's like you know, you know me. It's one thing if you don't know me, but just to think that I'm susceptible to brainwashing. And second, what if I did get into that? Would you just dismiss me outright? Like, let's say that I was some QAnon freak. Would that be reason to dismiss everything I have to say? I wasn't even, you know, I, I certainly wasn't talking about QAnon. Because that's the equivalent of being like, oh, you're talking about, let me, let me come up with a good example. Um, it's, it's, like, it's like telling somebody like, you can't talk about professional football because you watch pro wrestling. 
You know, that's kind of the equivalent to me. It's like creating this, you know, it's like I can't take your opinion on free speech seriously until I know whether or not you're part of the QAnon cult. It'd be one thing if it was framed around QAnon. QAnon. Like if what I was saying was some sort of QAnon talking point, and I'm sure there were QAnon freaks who agree with what I said. And I certainly know there are people who aren't, who you don't have to be a QAnon freak to make the points I've made about free speech. Everybody who listens to this show knows exactly where I stand on that. I don't think that... I don't think that the brand of Q is anywhere on what I say. How could it be? How could it be? But it bothered me that he kind of had that built in, that he needed to clarify. He needed to clarify that I hadn't been brainwashed by the fringes of the right wing. And that also told me like, oh, you didn't really listen to me when we were friends. Maybe because we were drunk. But I, I, always used to, I, I used to say, like, we would be out drinking and politics would come up, and, but politics were far looser. Like, you could make little comments about your beliefs, and it wasn't... This is probably, like, 2015. Pre, this, you know, this is pretty much just pre-2016. Like, this would have been between, like, 2012, 2013, and, like, 2015. And politics would occasionally come up, and I would always say, well, yeah, you know, my views are, are more conservative than that. And people would just nod along. And I, I think to them, though, like saying that because they've demonized actual conservatives so badly and they know that I'm a decent guy to hang out with and they want to hang out with me, when they hear me say that my views are more conservative in some ways, I think they assume that, oh, I'm, I'm just like on the moderate left. And I wouldn't put myself on the right necessarily either. You know, it's, I'm not even a fence sitter. It's just that I don't want to play the game. I'll give my opinion on a given issue. I don't like the bundles. I don't like the way these ideas have been bundled together. But it would come up. Like, I, you know, while I, we didn't have in-depth political conversations, we didn't have political arguments back then, I made it clear that I didn't necessarily agree because, because, you know, this group of friends, they were, they were already very far left even back then. So maybe they just assume that because I'm a decent guy to hang out with, when I say I'm more conservative about these things, they just assume that, oh, that must mean he's just like, he's on the moderate left. Because if he, if he actually had any viewpoints that linked up with the real right wing, he'd be a raging monster. He'd be tearing our heads off at this party. You know, that's, I, I do believe, everything I just said, I do believe that to be true. I do believe that there is not just a demonization of the right. And, and of course, of course, the right wing does it to the left too. You know, at no point am I ignoring that. It's just that I'm not talking about that. That's not what's relevant to me right now. I just want to make that clear. But, uh, you know, there's this demonization of the right, but then that's combined with the fact that you, they have no friends. There's nobody, like there was a big controversy in this group of friends I used to party with because there was a girl that got a boyfriend who made a comment that all the best writers are men. And I think he was trying to be kind of incendiary. I mean, he said this to a bunch of feminists, outspoken feminists, like he kind of, you know, he should have known what he was getting himself into, but it became this ongoing controversy, and that was the only talking point. It was just the fact that this guy made a comment that all the best writers are men. 
And I think, but I mean, there's the thing is, is there's a friendly way to have that conversation. There is a friendly way to make a sort of like a, a guys versus girls argument just because there is oppression doesn't mean you can't have fun with that dynamic. And that's what's really missing from everything right now is that man and woman dynamic has been just gutted and, and it's, it's just distorted. And there's a spectrum to it. Like a guy who clearly gets along, like this guy has a girlfriend who's like part of some liberal group of friends and... You know, that could mean anything. It doesn't mean anything about him. But it's just like, you know, the guy's non-threatening. He made a silly comment about books. Like, you know, I would never feel the need to volunteer that just to start an argument. But it's like there's a playful way to handle that. Um, but yeah, I guess, you know, and... Yeah, it's just, it's just uh, like someone thinking like, oh, we don't know, you might have gotten radicalized. But I, just to finish that thought, it was it was that idea, the idea that you think that you've known me and you think that I have the sort of character that would be easily brainwashed by some recent fad, you know, at the fringes of conservatism. You think that I would be easily brainwashed by that. So one, that sucks. That sucks that you apparently don't know my character well enough. And have such a paranoid and suspicious view of people. Like just because you haven't hung out with somebody in a while, you develop this paranoia that they're being corrupted by these almost supernatural forces in, in their mind. And then second of all, just the fact that even if I was that, even if I was a QAnon freak, that that would be grounds to just dismiss everything I have to say. Even if what I was saying had nothing to do with the QAnon Whatever it is. I don't know what to call it. A trend? But I've been thinking a lot about men and women today. And, you know, what I've realized is, you know, thinking about all all the friends I've had, just what I've observed being a person. And, yeah, there's, there's horny men. There are men who, you know, really just put sex above all else. But more than anything, what I've seen in people is men want a confidant. What they're looking for from a girlfriend or a wife is a confidant. Somebody that they can trust. And that they can say, you know, most things too, not everything. I mean, you don't, because I mean, that's, that's a whole issue today where I've noticed this before I stopped dating. And then I've seen this with couples I know I just see this in the media it's just it's obvious which is that couples today seem to to want to have identical interests it's and and I think part of it comes from women and I know I'm hard on women I'm not going to shy away from being hard on women on this show I've had kind of a, you know, I've had to ask myself, do I really want to make this a show where I just complain about women? But the reality is, like, if you think I'm hard on women, actually listen to what I have to say about men. If you think for one second that I'm a misogynist or I'm excessively hard on women, pay attention when I talk about men. If you think I'm hard on women, actually pay attention to how freaking hard I am on men. 
And people have a hard time with that. People have a hard time noticing that. They don't notice how hard, like when they talk about men being hard on women, do you actually ever pay attention to how hard men are on each other? And they, and when they do, they, they mention how it's toxic masculinity. No, men are hard on each other for a reason. That's our survival. Our survival depends, our progress depends on men being hard on each other. Not to a cruel extent, like, like, like everything, there's a spectrum, there's cruelty. Like, do you think that a group of guys ribbing their friend is the same thing as, as hanging a nerd upside down and like sticking a broom handle up his, you know what? Like, do you think that's the same thing? It's a spectrum. It's men being hostile to one another, but it's also how they sharpen each other. But like anything, you can take it too far. It's a tool. Like, in, like I always talk about tools and processes and men being hard on each other is a tool. Like I just listened to my football episode yesterday, if you can bear to get through it. But in that episode, I talk about how like a big part of my, I mean, I look back at, at these coaches screaming at me. I look back at, you know, this sometimes hostility between your own teammates, this competition with your own teammates, or like what I just said about sportsmanship, like when you play a team and all that. And it's like, you know, like think about two fo- two football teams playing each other. They are being hard on each other. <laughs> They're saying, "I don't want you to get this ball into this end zone, and I'm gonna be willing to use my body to hurt you. I'm not gonna try to maim you or injure you, but I am gonna try to hurt you because no matter how many pads you're wearing, it hurts to get hit. And when you play the game of football, you know you're gonna get hurt." You know that injury is a possibility. You know that an actual full-blown injury is, is a possibility. But you also know that just the game itself is going to hurt you as you play it. And every single football game I ever played, I came home with bruises everywhere. Like, I was an offensive lineman and defensive lineman. You're in there. Like, you're, you're having a fight with somebody. Your, your hands are on this guy's body, and you're shoving him. You're, you're, you're trying to move him in this direction. And you, your arms, like, when you're an offensive lineman... Or, or just a lineman of any kind, if you're on the offense or defense, if you're a lineman, you come home from a football game and your arms are covered in bruises. You know, because you're just, you're, you're actually fighting somebody. Yeah, you're not punching them in the face, but you are having, you are up close with somebody exchanging blows, trying to get them, you know, to, to bend to your will. I call that being hard on somebody. I think if, if, if you could boil football down to one core characteristic, you have to be willing to be hard on these people, your own teammates, because you want to encourage them to push themselves to work hard. But then you're hard on this other team because you're saying, I'm not going to let you bring this ball into our end zone and I'm going to hurt you. I'm going to bruise you. I'm going to shove you. I'm going to tackle you. So it's like, and we enjoy that. Like, like as men, we get a lot of satisfaction out of that because it's like, we enjoy making things hard on each other. And our sense of humor reflects that too. And that's been really eye-opening for me, having close male friends and close female friends. And some of my women friends are tough people who have been through a lot, and I would never say that they're weak. But I have noticed that when it comes to just throwing out the occasional friendly insult, there is a much different reaction. Like, I had a friend who didn't talk to me a couple of weeks because, like, she she mentioned something like, oh, you know, uh, sorry if, 
me and my date were dorks last night or, or sorry if I like I was a dork last night you know I was on a date when I ran into you and it was just it was awkward and I was like oh don't worry you, you were both being dorks and I didn't even mean it in any kind of way I was I meant it to be reassuring where it was like you weren't the only dork but I, I, I got the feeling I really hurt her feelings just saying yeah you were a dork and your date was kind of a dork I don't know that's kind of mean maybe I maybe I was wrong there um, but still, it's like I've noticed a, uh, I, I definitely have to worry about sensitivity more, like that something can be perceived as an insult that would otherwise be a flippant remark where like if you hear, hear like the messages friends have left me on my phone and it's not, it's not like we're bros. But it's like I have a friend who like used to leave me messages like he would call me and like there's things he would say in the messages, you know, it's like fighting words, but it's a friend, you know, that's what, what some friendships are like. And so I don't know. Uh, you know, men are very hard on each other. And I believe that we need to be hard on women too, but in a way that is constructive. And so when I talk about women, this isn't a disclaimer. I'm just saying, this is my viewpoint. This is my philosophy on talking about these things because I have questioned in the same way that I held back my friend's name, partially because we're now in an environment where saying that your friend got coronavirus and is unvaccinated puts his name on you know, just a theoretical radar and you shouldn't be in the habit of putting people's name on the radar in a time like, like this. In that same way, it's like, I feel like I have to explain how I view men and women or, you know, because there's so much potential for misinterpretation and there's so much interpretation for bias. Cause I do feel that if someone were to listen to this show or hear some of the things I have to say, they'd be like, Oh, he hates women. He has this huge problem with women, but they would be simply hearing what I have to say about women and not hearing all of the things that I say about men. And that's a thing, too, where it's like someone would say, well, there's more than just men and women. Yeah, but I'm talking about men and women here. Maybe you don't understand that. Here I am having an argument. This is me having an argument with a phantom. Okay, let's say... There's more than just men and women in this world. There are people who don't identify as a man or a woman. I'm talking about men and women. To me, that's like saying, like, it's like, oh, I'm having a conversation about black metal and death metal. And someone says, well, what about grindcore? Yeah, what about it? I'm talking about these things. So it's, it's funny, though, that like, even when you're making a point about two distinct poles, men and women, the North Pole and the South Pole, even when you're making a very specific point about two specific examples, there's this pressure to, what about the other categories? Yeah, but this is about these two categories. You know, because it's the same thing if you were talking politically. Like, everybody talks about Democrats and Republicans. And if you were to say, well, what about libertarians? What about anarchists? Not every politi- not everybody's politics are Republican or Democrat. Yeah, but I'm talking about Democrats and Republicans. So I don't understand why that's so dang difficult. How is that so difficult? It's because there are agendas. But I try not to assume people are brainwashed. Some people just make it so apparent. That's the, that's the beauty of not assuming somebody is brainwashed. The beauty of giving somebody the benefit of the doubt when they're making an argument is that if they are truly brainwashed, if they are truly out of their mind, 
even if you give them the benefit of the doubt, they will make it obvious to you. It's like if you're trying to decide whether someone's crazy or not, I default to the view of, okay, this, this is a sane person who might have something interesting to say, but they're going to reveal to you very quickly if they're actually out of their mind. I kind of take the same approach to brainwashing where it's like, if I go in assuming this person is brainwashed, if I go in and say, hey, I haven't talked to you for a couple years and we're hearing these stories about QAnon, QAnon, you know, if I go in with that, I'm going to be looking for that. But if I'm not looking for that and you reveal it anyway, if you make it so obvious that you've been brainwashed by something, well, then I really know because you managed to get past you man, like my ben, you managed to destroy my benefit of the doubt that I was trying to hold up, you know. So that's an approach you need to take. I, I really think you need to take that approach. I don't normally tell people what they should do, but I really believe you have to go in thinking I'm going to assume that this person is being honest and coming from the right place and thinking for themselves. But they're going to reveal to you. You just have to be aware of it. But yeah, the, the, I mean, I don't know why it's so hard. Like, like we need to be able to talk about specific categories without being told, what about these others? Because, I mean, that's even a form of what I talked about where there's that guy I know who was really upset that there was a top 10 list in guitar world of the top 10 best classic rock drummers, and he was really upset that there were no black drummers on there. You know, it's like the idea that politics have to be infused in that. And that's what people are expecting when they say, well, there's more than just men and women. At what point am I discluding that? I'm talking about men and women. I'm talking about classic rock drummers. Like Joe Obama, Ben Biden. I love that whisper thing he did. I really, I thought that was a, a very interesting and strange technique for a politician where he would say something and be like, in response to a journalist question, he was like, I don't know why that is. I'm talking about classic rock drummers. I'm talking about men and women. I need to start doing that. It was so strange. It was surreal, actually. I liked it, though. See, that's the thing is I like it when they're weird. That's what I liked about Trumpsfeld is that he brought a weirdness to politics. Like I was watching this young, there's a young guy running for office here in Washington State. He's ex-military. I looked at him and I was like, this guy, I don't know how old he is. I think his name's Joe Kent. He's a Republican. And I saw him and I was like, this guy could run. This guy, if, there, if nothing bad comes out about this guy and he manages to get elected in this heavily blue state. I was like, this guy could be the Republican front runner in 10 years. He's got a square jaw because that's I think that's what people are going to need after Trumpsfeld is I think they're going to need just the ultimate square-jawed ex-soldier. Like, I think whether that's the president or not, who knows what our world's going to look like, I think that the Republicans are going to need to prop that up if they want to stay relevant and bridge the gaps between the different conservative factions. I think they're going to need just that stereotypical G.I. Joe kid. That's just my opinion. But this guy, Joe Kent, you know, like, you could, it, it wasn't, like, like, it wasn't anything, uh, I guess what I mean is like there, there was no edge to what he was saying. You know, there was no, it wasn't weird enough. I think we need weirdness in politics now. I think people respond to quirks and weirdness more than has even been acknowledged. Because a lot of the people who seem most drawn to Trumpsfeld, 
they liked him for that weirdness. They liked him for that unpredictability, that chaos. And uh, when I see like young guys who are getting into politics and they, they sound very scripted, they sound very dry. And maybe that's what they feel they have to do. And they're probably just, that's how most politicians are, scripted and dry. Um, but yeah, anyway, I'm just, I'm talking about all that because I liked it when, when Joe Obama, Ben Biden did the weird whispers and I'm going to maybe work that into my, I'm going to workshop that a little bit. Um, but yeah, I don't know. It's, it's interesting to me that like, you can't make a point about specific subjects without needing to include all of it. You can't make a list of, of the top 10 classic rock drummers without somebody saying, where's the black drummers? You can't talk about men and women without somebody saying, what about everybody who's not a a man and woman? It's like the idea that you can't have specific conversations that cover a certain spectrum or cover a certain territory. But I've always been a fan of his and hers. Like, you know, couples today do seem to want to be exactly like each other. And, you know, I'll admit that like my experience is dating. I've brought all kinds of problems to the table. I'll readily admit that. But something that I've really struggled with is that in almost every relationship, save maybe one who wanted to get married and like have kids right away when I was like 21, uh, but save that situation, almost none of them had goals. Like there was no common purpose beyond just like finding somebody you like and spending time with them in in a committed relationship, which sounds great and everything. But you think about like people used to have such a common purpose. They still do, obviously, but people it used to be such a well-known common purpose that we are doing this to have children and form a household, you know, to keep the family tree going. Even if you're not thinking that, that's what you're doing. That's a part of it. You have this common purpose. So even if a husband and wife didn't share the same interests or wanted to do different things in their leisure time, they were united over the fact that they're raising children. And of course, that didn't guarantee that the household is sane or healthy. Of course not. You know, that's, that's what's funny about like the traditional movement in the last few years is that there's all these people who are like, everything was perfect when uh, the nuclear family just uh, dad read the paper, mom was in the kitchen, and the kids were playing outside. You know, people think that was perfect. We know that was imperfect. We know all kinds of abuse and you know horrible things went on. But that doesn't mean that system was bad. That doesn't mean that the that goal was bad. And it did at least bring different people together. And of course they're different. A lot of men and women are different. That's what my experience has shown me, being platonic friends with a lot of women. And then, of course, having you know, a lot of male friends. It's, it's like what I've learned is that even in that situation, even in a friendship where it's a hundred percent platonic, there's a level of trust and comfort. There's still a dynamic at play between man and woman. And you also have to, you have to be careful too. Cause even if neither person is seeking something, even if both people are on the same page, there's no you know, there's no imbalance in terms of romantic interest and you are truly just established as friends, you still have to respect certain boundaries that you wouldn't with a man. And that's no different than respecting the boundaries between different individuals. But still, there is a a larger pattern to it where you have to respect 
certain boundaries about your male friendships versus female friendships. Um, but it's like today, it's like instead of, you know, having these basic goals of like having children and establishing a household, creating your own little subculture, your own little f- familial subculture, instead, like couples are just like they prioritize Netflix. Like instead of focusing on what their family needs to do to survive and move upward and onward, they spend a lot of their time worrying about where to get takeout and what to watch on Netflix. No, we already watched that. You know, uh, you know, I don't really like it, but we have to do everything together. And we have to believe all the same things. Our lives have to completely overlap. And a lot of people would say that, that that's not always the case. Of course, it's not always the case. This is a trend. I'm not saying that this is every single couple today. It's a trend that I've observed anecdotally. It's a trend that I see increasingly commented on publicly. But there seems to be this added pressure to not have kind of his and hers. And I mean, you can even see this with the Internet. This is very interesting to see because, you know, early on back in, uh, you know, when I first got on the Internet, let's say, you know, 1990, let's say when I first started like looking at forums, 1999, around then, you know, they were dominated by men. Forums and message boards were dominated by men. They kind of had this, you know, whether it was just nerds, whether it was some niche subject, you know, a lot of the places that I went to were like music related. They were related to music and I guess counterculture in some way. I didn't go to, I didn't go to video game forums or anything like that. I didn't go to like anything, anything that is like outwardly nerdy, but there was kind of an idea that anybody on the internet at that time was a nerd. Not necessarily true, but there was kind of a presumption. But anyway, you know, most of these message boards were dominated by men for whatever reason. And there would be one or two women. There'd be a few women in some cases. But overall, it was kind of like a a male-dominated... It was like a social club. It was like an internet social club where men would, you know, express themselves, argue, joke around. And it was pretty brutal. Like, down the line, it was pretty brutal. Like, people weren't, people were just mean to each other. They were mean to each other, and they still are. We can see where that's that hasn't changed. Like, just as a little experiment, I've just been, like, looking at comment sections online and things like that, and just without fail, there's just so much meanness. But But men were very mean, but they didn't necessarily have an agenda. Like, sometimes somebody would go too far, in the same way that, like, the normal jabs in a junior high locker bay like those normal jabs that I think are a necessary part of growing up and learning how to interact with people, like those jabs can become cruelty. That's why like bullying isn't black and white. There is necessary bullying, but there's also cruel bullying. And it's you shouldn't teach kids not to ever be mean to each other or not to make fun of each other. You should teach them what the boundary is. Teach them where you draw a line and tell them, don't cross this line. This is cruelty. And so the early internet, that was my experience with it. And I was a bastard. You didn't have to tell me to start being mean to people. 
I was mean right away. I was I was born mean. I was though. I was just immediately. I just but I I certainly didn't create that. I joined it. I joined the meanness. But you know, you made friends that way. I made internet friends that way. People thought it was funny. That's the thing is that most people found it funny, but every once in a while, someone would take it to a, too much of a, someone would really try to humiliate someone. Maybe even like back then it was harder to dox somebody, but you'd see where like somebody would post their photo. And even if there was nothing that embarrassing about it, somebody would ridicule it. Like their pose. I remember that happening. Like somebody, somebody who really had nothing, like he was an in shape, like, you know, just average looking guy. There was nothing wrong with him. But somebody decided to like humiliate him based on the pose he was in, which again, like had nothing like, like, you know, there was nothing that bad about the pose. There was nothing bad about it at all. But it's what I've said before, where it's like when you take out the normal things that kids make fun of each other for, like when you tell kids like you can't make fun of someone for being fat, they're going to replace that with something else because it's not actually about it's not that they actually hate fat kids. It's that it's an easy way to get under someone's skin. And so if you tell somebody that, oh, you will be thrown out of school, you will be thrown in prison if you call another kid fat, well, they're going to find something else to say. That's my belief. Or they're going to do it behind the scenes. They're going to destroy people's reputations. They're going to gossip. They need to get that out of their system. They need to get that tension out of them. And so... Um, that's just what happens. And that's what would happen on the internet where somebody who was completely average looking, someone would manage to go like, Oh, I can't believe you're resting your (laughs) dude. look, he's resting his, his chin on his fist. He's sitting there resting his chin on his fist. Like, Oh dude, like what a freaking dork. Like someone would, uh, ridicule someone for that. Like something that you would never, ever imagine. I can't believe you're sitting like that. I remember little things like that because there were obvious ones like where if somebody had some obvious flaw to them or if they were ugly, you know, somebody could easily do that. But so they could do it about anything. Like I was on a message board and this woman, she was kind of an artsy, what we used to call a bohemian type, but she, she was wearing, she posted this photo of herself and she had like dyed red hair, a spike collar. And she was deep throating a banana. And I just said, like, that's disgusting. You shouldn't have posted that. I mean, I was 14 years old or something. You know, and I didn't say anything like directed at her, but I just said, like, that's disgusting. It was disgusting. It was just a disgusting picture. Like you see in the inside of someone's mouth, they're sticking a banana in their mouth. I'm not I'm very sensitive about food and like seeing people eat and people broadcasting that for whatever reason. I don't know what that is, but it's, it probably plays into why I don't like restaurants that much, but I just, I, I, you know, I said something like that's disgusting. You're disgusting. (laughs) And it it created like a storm. It was probably like the first internet fight I ever got in, but it created this storm, but people took my side, which is funny. Like, like, like people took my side because it was like, yeah, you know, what did you expect? Like you posted a picture of yourself in a spiked collar, deep throating a banana. You know, if people are making fun of each other, if it, I mean, people are making fun of men for the pose they're in in a photo they posted, which took effort, you know, because back then it was like you either had to scan photos or you had to like use a digital camera. There weren't 
you had to own a web domain where you could upload photos. It wasn't that easy to upload a photo to find hosting and all that. So it's like you had to you had to make effort to post a photo of yourself, and there was a high chance that you were going to be ruthlessly mocked. But that's what I mean, though, where it's like somebody was being mocked for like the pose he's sitting in in a photo. If you post a photo of yourself deep throating a banana, fourteen year old me is going to say that's disgusting. You're disgusting. You know, I could. I did it because I could. <laughs> the classic excuse. But overall, you know, and, and what's interesting, though, is like even though message boards were male-dominated, they embraced women in my experience. Like on multiple message boards, one message board that I was on, it was you know, more than one. Like there was like just one of very few women, and they were almost always, and it wasn't necessarily a romantic or sexual thing, they kind of would become the den mother. And they would almost, this happened more than once, even just places that I just observed, places that I was just going for information. But they would become kind of this den mother where they might even get made an admin or a moderator. And they would start like, and then like the men would be like, oh yeah, it was, it was weird. It was almost like, oh, we got a, a woman moved into our house and she's going to give this place a feminine touch. And so it was like, they would make a woman an admin or a moderator of this otherwise male-dominated message board, and she would start kind of like, as a joke kind of, like, because the thing is, is these women, they were, they were almost always the sorts of girls who thought, like, I'm not like other girls, or I don't get along with other girls. And so they liked that they were part of these male-dominated communities, and they weren't always using that for attention. You know, I'm not saying that. They weren't always using it for attention, but I think they did like being unique and exclusive and that they were one of few women there and if they got attention on top of that i'm sure they enjoyed it i was looking for attention too everybody on there was looking for attention but uh with, with women they it was this interesting phenomenon where i saw this play out more than once where the woman would become kind of the den mother she would become an admin or a moderator but then some sort of big drama bomb would explode and you'd go to this message board and there'd be all this information about like oh she oh, she was secretly carrying on relationships with all these guys on the board. And I actually experienced that myself when I was 15. I don't know that I've ever talked about this on here, but like I was on this message board and it, it actually had like more women than you would expect, but still a, a small minority. And they were all in their early to mid 20s, which was interesting. And I was a teenage boy. There were a bunch of teenage boys. I'd say everybody was under the age of 30. And like every message board ever, it was about a specific subject, but as soon as an actual active community developed, nobody talked about that subject anymore. In fact, a lot of people seemed to hate it. And you can even see where there's like this conservatism and liberalism in that, where message boards always had a group of people who were like, why aren't we talking about the subject that we're here for? Why aren't we talking about uh, the subject? Because if you went to a banned message board... You'd go to the message board and nobody's ever talking about the band. When the band does something, half the board hates it. And most of what people are doing is having these like social exchanges, just shooting the shit with each other, developing these friendships and relationships. And so it was funny how that worked, how it would be like the actual reason everybody was originally there, let's say because they liked the band whose website it was. You'd end up with these like factions of people, like some of which were like, why can't we talk about the band? Or why does everybody here hate the band? And then you'd have like the social, like more, you know, and that's conservatism. 
It's not political. It's a human tendency. That is human conservatism. It's to say, why aren't we doing the thing that we've always done? And the reason why we're here, the reason why this place was built. And then the other side is like, because it sucks now. And the girls are over here. Because that was the funny thing is the women on message boards were always on the side of things that had like moved beyond the original subject. They had all, they were always part of that sort of liberal element where it was like now they're talking about they're talking amongst themselves about life, about their lives, about fo- they're posting photos, they're talking about their pets, this and that. So it's like it's funny that women were almost always part of that more social element rather than the one that was more focused on the specific niche that brought everybody there. I knew a woman, though, who wasn't like that. I did, too, I'm sure, you know, but I'm just saying I noticed a trend there. But invariably, there would be a big explosion of drama, and the women were almost always closely involved. And a lot of it involved, like, in some cases, you had some really fucked up situations, just to explain the one that I was in where there was this woman there who was exceptionally beautiful. She was raven-haired. Like, she was truly like anybody. Like, this isn't just something where she was one of few women on the internet and I was a teenager. She was a truly beautiful woman. She was in her early 20s. She had a young daughter. She was single. She was into cool things. She was the cool chick. Because that's what you found, is that, like, women on message boards, they tended to be, like, the den mother or they were the cool chick Sometimes it was like openly like they were sometimes it was up front that there was they were like flirting and there was like a sexual romantic element. But, you know, usually it was like, oh, she's a cool chick. And that was usually the the truth. They were the cool chick. Like and when I say the cool chick, I don't mean that facetiously like there are that's a I love the cool chick. The cool chick is cool, but it's still a certain archetype. And sometimes they're very pretty. And this one was, and she was older than me. And like before, like I, I, I had talked to her because you would just, you, the weird thing about this is you would, the message board wasn't enough. Like just being on the message board was not enough. You also had to talk on instant messenger. So these communities developed. And I would say I wasn't even as involved as a lot of people, which says something. It says something about the draw of this, even in the early internet where you're drawn into this just by being there. You become a part of this community just by being there, which is strange. Like, you know, I'm not the kind of person who would jump at that kind of thing, but you end up talking to these people. And so I, I would talk to this woman and she, she of course was stunningly beautiful and she was involved in this sort of like half public relate online relationship with a guy on that message board. And she had dated another one previously. So this was already known. Like she was, she, I think the, the reason she was even on this message board is because she was dating a guy who was connected to the, to the, uh, the people who ran the site or something like that. Like that wasn't an internet relationship, but she had been dating a guy who was connected to the site in some way. And so that made her join the board, but they broke up and she stayed on the board and she ended up kind of like half publicly dating this guy who was a very nerdy guy who ran a humorist website from a small town. It was like everybody back then was trying to start like humorist websites, like where they wrote funny articles. That website, Something Awful, kind of was a more popular version of that. But this is before that even existed, at least as far as I know. 
but you had like these humorous websites and a lot of early internet humor was informed by that. There was a tone to it. It was usually offensive, but it was also, and it was typically nerdy. And this guy ran one of those. And to be honest, he was a very funny guy. He was, you know, back then it was, it took a lot of effort to run a website like that by yourself. And he did it all by himself. And he, he lived in a small town, a very small town. So he was kind of this sheltered nerd who ran a humorous website, but she ended up kind of half publicly dating him. And they had these big plans that they would talk about on the board. And it was like, they were going to move in together and they were going to like start a, they were going to like write Hollywood movie scripts or something. Like, I'm serious. They were, they were they had these big plans together. Like her and her daughter were going to move in with him, but they only met once or something like they or twice. Like, I think it was something like that where like they'd only met a couple of times, but they had this big plan to move in together, like in cross country, like they lived on different coasts. And then sure enough, that didn't work out. And then she started talking to me more and we ended up getting into this weird romantic thing where we talk on instant messenger late into the night. And I mean, I'm 15 years old. I'm a fat 15 year old. And she is this beautiful, alluring older woman who's talking to me and it gets kind of romantic. Like there was never anything sexual about it. We never once talked about anything sexual, but we'd, we'd write these embarrassing instant messenger messages that were heavily romantic, really silly, but you know, it, it was, it was strange. And that's all it was. Like it wasn't an online relationship. It wasn't like I had, I've never had an internet girlfriend, you know, but, uh, it was definitely these like romantic exchanges and it stroked my ego, you know, it stroked my ego to be talking to her, but it was also very weird and surreal because there were times where like people would use Yahoo instant messenger because you could use webcams and talk over voice. It was just like Skype or anything else. You could do it via chat room too. And I didn't know that I didn't use it, but she used that. And so she was like, let's talk over Yahoo chat and that, and I didn't have a webcam. So it was me talking to her with my voice while she was on webcam talking to me over voice. And so I could see her, but she couldn't see me, which is for the best. Uh, I got the better deal out of that, but, uh, nothing sexual again, but just kind of flirt a little bit flirty and romantic. And her daughter would be like playing in the background, like making noise and I knew then, like, even though I was 15 year old and I was kind of smitten by this older woman who would stroke my ego for like an hour every night, <laughs> you know, even though I was kind of smitten by that, I knew it was dark. Like, even then your gut just tells you, your gut tells you something isn't right. My gut told me something was dark about this. And the daughter was the big part of that. Like the fact that she's talking, she's like engaging in like this sort of online romantic exchange with a teenage boy. She's a grown woman doing this with a teenage boy while her daughter's playing in the background. That's dark. I don't care what your point of view is. That is dark. And I look back on that and I just kind of shudder. But that was the, that was the extent of it. Like nothing more came of it. You know, I don't even remember exactly what happened. But one day I got home from school you know, and she and she's an example. Like she had been, she had been made like an admin or a moderator or something. You know, she had been given. She had become kind of the cool chick. All the guys liked her because she was cool. You know, she said she was interested in cool things. You know, she, and uh, she uh, 
she ended up becoming like an admin or something of this message board. And then one day I went there after school because I, I was never one of those kids who checked forums from school. There were, you would see kids in the computer lab checking forums at school. And I'm like, I don't need to do that. I got to have some, <laughs> I got to have some kind of boundary and you know, I can't go too far with this, but uh, I got home from school and like I checked the message board and it was just this massive expose where, you know, cause I remember like, cause guys would get kind of jealous of her. Like even though, even though like there was nothing publicly about anybody being romantically involved with her, cause interestingly, even though she and I had these romantic exchanges, it was never public. And she made sure of that I look, looking back, I'm like, oh, yeah, she would have made sure of that. Not that I would have not that there would have been some lovey dovey crap like on a public message board, although people do that. Um, but it's just just I could tell like looking back, I'm like, oh, I could tell that she was very strategic. And you could tell that men were kind of getting jealous of the fact that they knew other men were talking to her, but they didn't necessarily know what it was all about. So you can see where like people's gut feeling was telling them, like I've talked before about how jealousy, it's not always the worst possible version of jealousy. Sometimes it's just a subtle feeling where you go, hey, I'm kind of jealous of the fact that she talks to these other people. And so that there was a kind of vibe going on there where nothing was out in the open. But then one day I got on the message board and there was this expose where these two guys on the board who were like, they were both ex-military, but they both were computer. They were interesting. They were like ex-military computer programmers who were into like punk. You know, they were an interesting duo. Like they knew each other from the military, in fact. And they had ended up on this message board together. Because the interesting thing about this particular board is that people would recruit their real life friends to join it. And so these two guys, they were like these sleuths. And they managed to like figure out her whole system. And it turns out she was carrying out these online relationships with a bunch of the men. A bunch of the men on the board. She was doing, I imagine what she did with me and maybe in some cases more sexual because they also found out that she was like flying and driving out to like like some of the men who were adults. No, and even one who was a teenager. She, she had, was sleeping with multiple men too where she, like there was the guy that she, the nerdy guy who she was like planning to move in with. Like he had taken all these naked photos of her and he was a virgin, I'm sure. This guy had to have been a virgin when he met her. And he had taken all these naked photos of her and he gave them to these guys. Like, like he was part of this investigation these guys did. And he gave them the naked photos he took. And then it came out this other guy who was in his 20s. She had driven halfway across the country to go spend like a, a wild weekend with him. And he took a bunch of photos of her. And so they gave these photos to these two sleuths who put together an actual website with her naked photos, with stories I mean, truly awful. Like my ego was hurt. Like when I, when I found all this out, first of all, it confirmed my gut. Oh, and I should say too, that early on in all this, there was this other woman who was there who was really cool. Like she was like in her mid twenties and I used to talk to her a lot, you know, and, and I remember like when she knew this is so weird, but, and I feel kind of embarrassed even talking about this, but like when I first started talking to this other woman, when I first started talking to the woman who got exposed, this other woman who was friends with her and like knew her in real life, it turned out like they had, they, they met through the internet, but they had become friends in real life. Like she told me like, be careful of her. I don't remember what she said, but basically she was like, be careful of her. Like she's, she's manipulative. She basically she's dark. 
Be, like, and at the time, you're 15 years old. You have no experience. You're just like, okay, sure. It's a, another woman being catty. But this other one, I remember her being very sweet. She never tried to flirt with me. She never did anything weird. But I remember her being very sweet, and she warned me about this woman, and I didn't listen. And then sure enough, like, it, it confirmed, like, when this expose came out, like, it confirmed my gut feeling that something weird was going on, that darkness. It confirmed what that other woman said to me. But it was still really fucked up that they, I mean, they put the scarlet letter on this woman. They made a website. And they posted nude photos of her publicly. And there was this thread on the message board where everybody was telling their own stories. A bunch of guys were coming out of the woodwork. And I commented, and I was like, oh, yeah, I got sucked in, too. I got sucked into it, too. I posted that. I didn't say anything mean. I just said, yeah, I got sucked into it, too. She was going on with me for months. And then... Within within a minute of me posting that, she messaged me on Instant Messenger and was like, how dare you, how could you say that? Like, you betrayed me. So she was obviously hovering over this message board thread. Why wouldn't she? She was being exposed. Naked photos of her were being shared. You know, of course she was obsessed with it. But what's really sick is I got the feeling she enjoyed it. Like in some sort of S&M, you know, in some sort of masochistic way. I got the feeling that she enjoyed it. Like when she messaged me, like the way that she was hovering over this and messaged me within a minute of me saying something, I got the feeling she was getting some sort of pleasure out of it. Because it was almost like she was, because here's the thing, is like what they did was terrible. What they did was terrible. I mean, it's the equivalent, I mean, it's, it's the same thing as like sharing sex videos of your ex-girlfriend to get revenge or sending nude photos of your girlfriend to her parents. You know, it's sick shit. That's horrible, sick shit. And so what these guys did was really sick and twisted. But you also have to look at it and say, that's true. And there's no getting around that. But a bunch of egos were hurt. She was playing with fire. And it's the oldest story ever told. It's what I told my friend when he was having an affair with a married woman. I was like, well, you're participating in the oldest story ever told. And I know right now it doesn't seem like it, but you could get killed. She could get killed. Her husband could kill himself. And I'm not moralizing. I've been in your situation, but I'm, I'm not telling you what to do. I'm just letting you know that you have to remember that you're participating in the oldest story ever told. Infidelity. Whether you believe in the Ten Commandments, whether you believe in the Buddhist precepts, there's a reason why sexual misconduct specifically related to infidelity is so heavily emphasized. Because a lot of people died. Before, that, before, the, before the commandment was written, thou shalt not covet the na- thy neighbor's wife, before that was written, do you know how many people, people died because of that? In the same way that a law gets invented today, like in the same way that in countries that have banned guns, or assault rifles, in the same way that that's a response to the fact that a lot of people had to die from assault rifles before they banned that, or somebody had to die from it. That commandment, that thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife, that exists because a lot of people died, and they had to say, don't do that. It's not just because it's morally wrong. It's not just because it's deceptive. A lot of people died. 
Men kill other men. It's one of the oldest stories ever told. It's one of the bloodiest and oldest stories ever told. And you are gambling when you participate. And when I was in a similar situation, not identical to that one I just described, but similar, it felt like gambling. And if you get out of that, if, all, if, if the only thing that happens, if you're participating in infidelity and the only thing that happens in the end is, is a couple people have broken hearts or one person has a broken heart, you just won. Not won, but you, that's the best possible outcome. The best possible outcome in infidelity is that somebody has a broken heart and that's it. Whether it's you, whether it's her, whether it's the husband, a broken heart is the only thing you can hope for. And if that's the only thing you can hope for, that should tell you about the thing that you're getting involved with. And it's not, no amount of polyamory teaching, like teaching kindergartners about polyamory is not going to solve that problem. Because guess what? We had polyamory. And people killed, still killed each other. Which is why these institutions were developed, like marriage and this commandment, the Buddhist precept against sexual misconduct. And almost all you know, Buddhist teachers say that yeah, infidelity is a big one. As far as sexual misconduct goes, you know, Buddhism's a little more vague about it. But they'll say it refers to infidelity for sure. But anyway, you know, so you're playing with fire anytime anytime that you are stringing multiple men along or having affairs with multiple men at once, especially within a small insular environment. Like the fact that she was carrying, this, is, this wasn't her just carrying on with, uh, this, this wasn't her just carrying on with like an assortment of men. It was all men from this one message board. And you know what? I doubt that it was limited to that. Because I look back and I remember her saying things like when she drove across the country and it ended up to have this this wild weekend with a, a guy from the message board. I remember she told me, she's like, oh, I'm going on a trip this weekend. She didn't say where. She just said, oh, I'm going on a trip this weekend. And then other things she had said, too. Like, I remember she was like, oh, I hung out with an old friend tonight. I hadn't seen him in a long time. And it's like looking back, it's like, yeah, you don't want to assume things. But it's like I remember like I didn't know what it was at the time, but I remember having like a gut feeling about that like feeling some sort of jealousy or something, even though I had no business to. It's not like she was my, she wasn't even my internet girlfriend, but it was just, there was this romantic thing going on. And when she said like, oh, I hung out with an old friend tonight, I hadn't seen him in a while. You just naturally, your mind naturally goes places, whether it's pure imagination or not. With this expose about her, I doubt it was my imagination. Who knows the extent? Who knows how many men she had on the line? Who knows what she was engaged in? And what's really interesting about this is her screen names were always some kind of variation of succubus. Like she would use different variations of, of the word succubus and other kind of like dark, gothy sort of things. And she wasn't really a goth, but she liked kind of dark stuff. And uh, she was like, before girls were like, I'm witchy. She was kind of like that. But she, she used variations of the screen name succubus. And it's like, it's right there in the advertising. But at the time, you're just like, oh, she uses the screen name Succubus because she's uh, cool. That's a cool chick thing to do. A cool chick uses the screen name Succubus. But in reality, she was telling us exactly what she was. <laughs> you know, in retrospect, it's like she was 
actually describing herself as the very thing that she was doing. But the reality is she wasn't a demon. You know, the reality is like she was not a demon succubus. She was a damaged person. But I almost wonder if it was deliberate. Like the fact that she called herself succubus, did she use that as kind of a license to actually act like a succubus? I don't know. But in, even back then, though, like I knew she, I, I didn't hate her. I, I, I didn't hate her for it. I thought what those guys did was disgusting even back then. You know, I, I'll mock a woman for deep throating a banana while wearing a spike collar in an extremely unflattering photo back then. But I would not. I did not. I knew it was wrong that these guys posted these photos. But what's interesting is she didn't take legal action. I don't I don't I have no idea what ended up happening, but she didn't take legal action. She just. And I think I talked to her a couple times afterward in passing, but obviously it wasn't the same. Obviously, the, her cover had been blown. But it was just, it's funny that she used succubus. But I, I realized, like, she's not a demon. She's a damaged person. And I, the more I look back on her, the more I believe that she just had unknown traumas. Not that everything has to boil back to that. Not that every time somebody does shitty things, it's all because of trauma, childhood trauma. With her, though, I, it's just a fact as far as I'm concerned. It's just a fact. Like, I've, I've had enough experience since then. In the 20 years since then, I've had enough experience with people to know the signs. And sometimes you look back retroactively and you're like, the signs are all there. I don't think this woman had a good upbringing, to say the least. And who knows what other issues existed in there. And I found out she died. I know somebody who had, I used to be, I was in contact with somebody who still knew her for a while. And she died a few years ago. She died young. I don't know what it was. I don't know if it was drugs. I don't know if it was just natural causes, but it wasn't violent. And you know what? It's, it's, this is another one of those things that's very telling. But when I found out she died and I saw her obituary, my first thought was to, to see if it had been a violent situation. And the reason for that is because I don't do that with everybody. When I find out somebody I know died, even if they died relatively young, I don't automatically think, oh, I need to make sure they didn't die a violent death. With her, I wanted to make sure it wasn't violent. I wanted to make sure that it wasn't like her boyfriend killed her or a man killed her because I knew that she would, she would play with fire. And what she did, no matter how bad the things she did were, no matter, no matter how many egos were bruised, Obviously, she would never deserve to be hurt for it physically, but it's still like I know that fire and I know how out of control that gets. When someone plays with fire and it gets out of control, people die. You know, that's just the, the reality of it. And there was a girl that I went to high, uh, junior high with. She was a couple years older and she was like she was smoking meth. She would bring vodka and water bottles to school. And then she became a born again Christian after high school, yeah, after high school and I found out that her boyfriend strangled her to death. And who knows what it was about. But it's just like you, you hear those kinds of things. And you can only imagine. You know, you can only imagine like, yeah, some people will kill their wife just because of an argument or because of, you know, something like that between them. But, you know, infidelity plays such a big role in these things that when I found out this woman died, I was just like, I wanted to make sure that she hadn't been killed because she had gotten sucked into yet another not a love triangle, like a love. No, what came out of this expose about her was like, we're not talking about love triangles. We're talking about 
like a mini, like, you know, these, these Dungeons and Dragons dice. We're talking about like these mini sided die trying love. It's a, it's a, it's a, a mini sided die of love in her case. And so knowing that about her, I wanted to make sure somebody hadn't killed her. And I was, I was really sad to find out she died. I was honestly really sad because I just thought about, you know, the, hopefully things had gotten better. Hopefully her situation was better, but it made me really sad because I just thought about this woman's life, which is tragic. And she left kids behind. But it was interesting, just that dynamic, because what got me going on this is just the fact that like message boards were male dominated but they didn't like try to exclude women, but they would kind of put women on this pedestal and then really eat up the attention. Because I mean, men bear as much responsibility for this as anybody. Like men would get sucked in, men would go out, go out of their way. And you would find out too that like when, when there were these women on message boards who were rare, they were rare, but they were always kind of involved. They were always very active and involved. You would find out too that even if there was nothing romantic going on or, or weird, they were like these confidants to men. Like a lot of men would say things to them. Like I did that with them. Like talking about that one who was in her mid-20s that warned me about this other woman. Like she was kind of this confidant of mine. I was this teenage boy and I could talk to this older woman and it never got sexual or romantic, but she and I would just talk about life. And that was actually cool. It was cool that I could talk to this older woman about that stuff. And I think that was kind of the common dynamic. It's not that all the men were looking for some sex pot. It's not that all of these men were looking to have some, to be caught in some love spell. I think a lot of these men were looking for a confidant. And these women would become kind of hubs of information. Like they, it would always surprise me because you'd find out that they had like, all of this personal information and photos and stuff of everyone they talked to, like men in particular were willing to give those women information about themselves. Cause keep in mind, like the internet back then was even more secretive. Like as a general rule, it was more secretive and more anonymous than it is now. Yeah. You still have people who are secretive and anonymous, but the general rule, like now the general rule of the internet is to have your name out there and your face. But back then, it was, it was harder to do that. People were far more scared of audiophiles and you know, thieve, identity thieves. People were just far more scared of the, the, the wild frontier that was the internet. But they were far more willing to give women their information. And I saw this play out where there, was, there were a lot of older women who had that sort of relationship with teenage boys. And I think sometimes it became romantic, sometimes it didn't, but there was, the internet created these new digital relationships between teenage boys and cool older women that would have otherwise been extremely rare, but it made it accessible. And I look back and I don't think these women were sick. Like that one was, I do believe she was sick. I say that without any judgment. She, you have to be sick to do that. You have to be sick to play with fire and create such a tangled, to weave such a tangled web. You have to be sick, I believe. But some of these older women, like looking back, like if my mom had known that I was talking to women who were in their 20s, I don't know how she would have felt. I don't know. But it wasn't dangerous. And that shows you the difference between men and women anyway, where even if a 24-year-old man was talking to a 15-year-old and having the same exact conversations I had with this older woman, 
the one who it was strictly platonic. But even if an old, you know, a man of that same age was having that conversation with a, a girl, it would be a problem. It would be a problem. Like, even if he kept it totally platonic, it's very difficult to do that sort of taxi driver dynamic. And I can't even imagine wanting to. That's the thing for me is like, I can't even fathom, like when I was 24, I wouldn't have even considered the idea of having like a platonic internet friendship with a young girl. But it's interesting that so many women who were that age did have this with younger men. I don't know what that says. I don't know what that says about them, about the boys. I mean, the boys obviously enjoyed it to some degree, even if it wasn't sexual. It's still attention. And it's relatively, you know, it's, it's, you're not, uh, you're not afraid of what you have to say either because it's low stakes. I think that's the thing that's attractive about it too, is it's low stakes. Whereas like saying something to a girl at school is high stakes in theory. Saying something to a grown woman, like, like becoming friends with a grown woman through some, something personal in the flesh that's almost impossible for a teenage boy. And it's extremely high stakes. But on the internet, it was very low stakes. But over time, you can see where the internet became more centralized. Like these message boards were all over the place and they were disconnected. But as the internet became more centralized in the form of social media, people all having the same email account. Like it used to be where you would email people and everybody would have a different email email uh, host. Sometimes it would be their personal website. Sometimes it would be a friend's website. Sometimes it would be Yahoo, Lycos. You know, Google didn't exist. Um, Hotmail. I still have a Hotmail account. You know, so it's all these different and, and tons more we'll never remember. Tons more that you'll never know. And then the centralization of the internet was, okay, now everybody has a Gmail address. Oh, and you actually have to have a Gmail uh, address in order to use YouTube now. Oh, you have to have a Gmail address. You know, you have to have a Google account, which is synced with your Gmail. So it's like everything is synced. Everything is centralized. Everybody has the same. Like, if you can't remember a friend's email today, like, let's say you, you know, you can just guess that it's at Google. You can just guess that it's Gmail. You can go, okay, I remember that, oh, you look at me and it's like, oh, yeah, I, I remember that Eric's email is, you know, his name. Oh, I, I guess it's, I'm just going to guess that it's Gmail. You know, you can just guess it because that's how centralized the internet is. Most people have a Gmail address. And you can see where now, like, everything else is centralized. You don't go and look at content on different websites. You go to the same centralized websites. That content might come from all kinds of different places. And your interactions are not compartmentalized either. They're all on these centralized social media accounts that have largely replaced forums. They've replaced instant messenger. Because even these different tools, like even the instant messengers have gotten integrated with Twitter and Facebook and Instagram. Email. I mean, there's people who think aside from work, they don't use email. In like 2015, I was at work and I was talking to a friend of mine there. And I mentioned, I was like, oh, yeah, I have to. I was like, I got this email from a friend of mine. And she goes, you still use email? And it was, it was a joke. But still, like it told you something that like the average person isn't using email to correspond with their friends and family. 
you know, they're using it for work. They're using it for when they have to get a service done, but they're not using it just for social correspondence. Whereas I do, I love email. And so that was, and that was years ago. And, and so you can see where like social meteor has centralized all of that. It's email, it's instant messenger, it's forums, it's your profile, it's everything in one. But with that, with that centralization, you have large groups of women together. You have large groups of women, whereas forums, I'm sure there were forums with a lot of women on them. I'm sure there were girl forums. Those are what we call girl forums. I'm sure those existed, but you didn't really come across them. Like the average forum was not, at least you didn't know if there were many women on. Maybe some of them were anonymous. I don't know, but uh, that is the, the interesting thing too, is that when there was a woman on a forum, she would typically volunteer it. Because again, like the, this, it, things were so apolitical then. Like 1999, pre-9-11 was so apolitical. Like you would be on these message boards and nobody was discussing politics. Nobody was really going into it. Even if you went to like a punk message board, nobody was really talking about politics. People were kind of past it even. And w- the women there, they were never going, even though they were often the cool chick, they were often liberal. They were often, quote-unquote, not like other girls. But even then, they, they didn't really play up the feminist card. They seemed to kind of enjoy that, that their womanhood was emphasized by the fact that they were one of few women in this place. And they seemed to want to volunteer that. They didn't seem to want to just hide in the shadows pretending to be a guy or being anonymous. I'm sure there were many people like that, but it's just from what I saw, that's, that's, that's what I saw. But with the internet becoming more centralized, it has become more feminized. And I don't, like, kind of like globalized, when I say globalism, I don't necessarily mean that as a pejorative, that it's all bad. Because there are good things about the internet becoming feminized. There, there, the, there are good feminine qualities that have come to the table. But this has come through, like, a much higher concentration of women dominating social media. And as far as I'm aware kind of girls club sort of groups first really developed with live journal. These online journal communities were heavily feminine. And then Tumblr, I never, I never paid any attention to Tumblr, but from what I gather, like I had multiple girls I knew who had Tumblr accounts. I had a couple girlfriends with Tumblr accounts. And that's when you started to see politics take a much larger presence. And it was sort of a girls club, you know, it was definitely heavily feminine. And so women were kind of operating in their own insular communities, whereas message boards had been kind of a guys club that women occasionally participated in. These sites like LiveJournal and Tumblr, they became girl clubs that men occasionally participated in. And it's what's interesting is a lot of people trace back what's now called wokeness. I mean, it's been around forever, but what people like people trace back the current woke movement back to sites like Tumblr. And those sites were a, a kind of a, an echo chamber of women for better and worse. And, uh, we can see where social media itself kind of became an extension of that. And I know a lot of men who don't feel comfortable expressing all of their views around their wives and girlfriends, which I think is a tragedy. And I don't think it's because they want to 
say the most offensive thing. I mean, many of them don't even have offensive values, you know, or anything that controversial. But we just exist in a climate where increasingly, when I talk to my friends who are dating somebody, or even if they're married in some cases, they self-censor a lot. And maybe their wives do too, you know, and and I think self-censorship is important to any relationship. It's not like you need to say everything that's on your mind. But something is very stilted. And you can't go on social media and express those things. And, you know, people, you know, like we kind of have this idea that people don't want to express themselves honestly on social media for professional reasons or political reasons. Like if you say what you if you say what you really feel on social media or it could damage you professionally. It could cause the political mobs to go after you. That's true, too. I mean, that's not, of course, that's a big reason. But I also know that a big reason why I think some men, for example, might not say what they really mean on social media is they don't want to upset women. Whether it's the women in their life, their girlfriend or other women in their life, or whether it's potential mates. I think a lot of men are terrified of upsetting women. And I don't think men should want to upset women. But I think they're terrified of upsetting women, so they just, they don't say anything. And again, though, I don't think it's that they want to say something that's inherently offensive. I don't think they want to be assholes. I just, I think they want to be able to express themselves, but I don't even think that's the right place. And I think that's what I'm getting at here, is that I think forums were were imperfect, but I think they provided a service in that men could go to them and talk amongst themselves. And while an occasional woman would, would show up, and sometimes that was cool, sometimes it was a disaster, you know, it was still kind of a male social club. And men could, and, and it wasn't friendly. Men were always fighting. They were mean to each other. Again, it's not like men, when men get together in their own private clubs or their own private environment, they don't get together and high five each other nonstop. You know, they push each other even conversationally, you know, and I don't even, I'm not even talking about competition or hostility. I'm just talking about, it's just, there's a lot of pushing and they're hard on each other. Men on message boards were extremely hard on each other, extremely hard. And so it's not that men need safe spaces. I haven't heard that one in a while. It's not that it's, it's just that they need a place where they can express themselves without worrying about women watching. And because we live in this panopticon, you never know who's truly watching. But on social media, for example, like I think a lot of men don't express themselves because they don't want to potentially ruin their chances with women. They don't want their girlfriend or wife mad at them. They don't want their their loved ones mad at them. And so they're afraid of, they're kind of afraid of women. I think there's a lot of fear of women these days. And I'm not afraid of women, you know, I, I'm really not, um, not in that way. Like, like, I don't know. I mean, I get positive feedback from women about this show amazingly. And I don't mean that in a tacky way. I mean, like genuinely good feedback. I might be pushing the limits. I haven't, I have no idea at this point because I don't care. I don't care if what I say is taken the wrong way, but it, it does matter to me. Like when I do this show, if, if a woman listens to this show, I don't want her to feel that I'm being excessively mean 
I don't want her to feel that way. I don't, I don't want her to feel that I have any kind of agenda against women, but I want to be able to talk truthfully. Um, and this show is a very critical show, so that's, that's going to be part of it. But anyway, like when I do get positive feedback from women, it's, that's important to me. I value that. Because I, too, don't want to upset people. And I think a lot of people would be upset by some of the things I say on this show. Not because I have some persecution complex or some paranoid fantasy that I'm on the cutting edge of dialogue. I don't feel that way at all. I actually feel like what I'm saying is pretty simple, honestly. I make it more complicated, but what I'm saying is pretty simple. But um, I guess, you know... You know, forums kind of serve this purpose because men could go there. They could be mean to each other. They could joke around. They could form friendships. I made friendships that way. There are a few people. There are like two or three people I still talk to this to this day that I can trace back to those early message boards. And then a couple even later, like I like later on, even I I met a couple people on message boards. You know, so it's like there's a handful of people still in my life today that I can trace back to those early formative communications in the wild world of the internet. But I, I see a larger trend with all this, like in the same way that now, you know, social media, it's, it's very feminized. Like you can see like a lot of the popular dialogue is focused on empathy and feelings and making sure nobody, nobody gets their feelings hurt, you know, making sure that nobody offends anybody, which isn't just a political tendency. It's like, I mean, I've, this is something like speaking of having close platonic female friends, this is, this is a big difference for me between my male friends and female friends, almost you could almost draw a straight line. Like this is something where there's barely even a spectrum. This is one where I really notice it and I have to be very careful. It's not just throwing out an occasional jab. You know, and, and too, I have to say about like throwing a jab at a female friend, I've never been like, well, yeah, you're looking a little pudgy. I've never, I've never mocked a woman for one of the classic things that women are insecure about. I don't believe in doing that. Why would I do that? I wouldn't do that to my male friend either. Like if a friend of mine gets a belly or something, I'm not going to I'm not going to make fun of him for being fat. I wouldn't do that. But, you know, it's it's I do believe that you need to kind of jab at your friends. It's part of the fun of friendship for me. Um but but the other side of that, it's not just like the difference in sensitivity. And there's men, I have friends who if I say sometimes I'll jab them and they fly off the handle, but that's funny. The difference is when I, if I say something or a friend says something to me that actually gets under my skin, it's almost like, good job. I almost respect it. Like if they do that to me, I respect it. And so I feel like on some level, they almost respect it. It's like when you can actually bother them, sometimes you're like, yes, I won that round and you get over it. But I think when you upset a female friend, it takes them a little bit more to get over it, you know? And I don't think, you know, I think that's probably true for men too. Like if a man is insulted by a female friend it might cut to his ego a little deeper it might it might have a different effect so it's a two-way street but the other side of this that I've learned and this is a big one this is the one where I really draw a firm line is self-deprecation I can be as self-deprecating as I want to my male friends and they know that I either don't mean it or it doesn't matter and they can do that to me when I've been self-deprecating to, to women, they immediately go like, no, that's not true. No, you're, you're good at that. 
Well, no, no, you're, you're just being hard on yourself. And that's really sweet. There's, at no point am I saying that's a, wrong. I'm just saying that I don't think that's socially conditioned. I don't think that comes from women being socially conditioned to put other people's feelings above their own or whatever the narrative says. You know, I, while society reinforces, society doesn't create that tendency. Society certainly reinforces it in some ways depending on the culture, depending on the time and place, that women should be caretakers. But the reason society reinforces that is because women naturally take on the role of caretaker too. They, they give birth, and the baby is attached to them. They're caretakers. It doesn't all boil down to that, though. It's also spiritual. Women are spiritual caretakers. It's not just because they're mothers or potential mothers. It's also, it's in them. And society might reinforce it. Sometimes they might reinforce it too much and make women feel like they have to do that. That happens too. But women do, I've just noticed this with even my most liberated feminist friends who have undone, they've undone all the programming. Oh, you've undone all the programming? Even if, if I say like, I'm a loser. Like you're not a loser. Oh no, you're no, you're so good at this. You know, they they feel the need to kind of like soothe that, and then I have to stop and go, oh, because I learned that about my mom. My mom was so sweet that like if I did make a self-deprecating joke to my mom, that motherly instinct kicked in where she was like, oh no, that's not true. And the, and it and it sucked because I would get kind of irritated because I was like, oh no, you, you have to let me do this. Trust me, my ego is out of control. My pride is out of control. You got to let me talk shit about myself sometimes because it's fun. And it's funny. Because that's the thing, too. It comes down to sense of humor. Like, I made a joke once. I said, they say there's all kinds of fish in the sea. But what they didn't tell me is it's the Salton Sea. And they're all dead. And this girl I know was like, oh, I'm so sorry. I'm sorry, you know, I know, you'll find somebody. And I'm like, oh, I'm not even looking. I'm not even looking. I was making a stupid joke. And it's frustrating because <laughs> you mean so, she means well. She means well. But I was making a stupid joke. I wasn't bearing my soul. Whereas if I had said that to any male friend I have, if I said... Yeah, just let me repeat it because I was very proud of that joke. Hey, yeah, they, 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 they say that there's a bunch of fish in the sea. What they didn't tell me is that it's the Salton Sea and they're all dead. How many more times can I repeat that? Um, don't, don't, uh, don't tempt me. But, you know, it's just if I told that to a male friend, they'd either be like, that's a stupid fucking joke. Or they just they laugh and move on. Or relate, but it's interesting that a female friend was like, "Oh my God, he's he's upset about the fact that he's like not able to find somebody." Oh, his heart must just. Oh my God, I can just feel his heart. His heart is breaking. I got to tell him. He's you know, and this wasn't somebody who had any interest in me at the time either, or anything. You know, it wasn't like she was just being a friend. But that was something I learned. I was like, I have to be careful about that. You know, because that's the other thing, too, is that's a very valuable trait to have in a friend. That's one of the reasons why 
if you're able to make and maintain platonic friendships with women, that is very valuable because they are the person you can go to when you're feeling legitimately down or legitimately bad about something and you want to talk about it in a way that just doesn't lend itself to male-on-male conversation. Male-on-male what? Male-on-male what? Conversation. No, you know, because I can commiserate. I can vent. I can talk about my feelings to my male friends, but it's different. In the same way that talking to your dad about something or talking to your mom it's different. You know, it's the same thing if you have male and female friends and you don't want to, you don't want to burden your female friends because that gets weird. Again, there's this boundary to it because that's, that's one of the big things you have to watch for with friendships between men and women is that when you bear your soul, if somebody does have some kind of romantic inclination, that's where they, Kind of, can kind of work their way in. And even if nothing comes of it, that's also when people get their egos damaged. That's why the nice guy syndrome exists, where I've never been a nice guy to a girl. I've never been the guy, like, I've had female friends who I listen, but the second they start talking about sex or dating, I go, I don't, if we're really good friends and you're going through a really hard time and you need somebody to talk to, I'll listen. But you never want to be the male friend who a woman complains about her dating life with. You never want you, don't, you never want to be her hairdresser. You never want to be her gay friend unless you're her gay friend or her hairdresser, her gay hairdresser. You don't want to be in that. And maybe there are unique situations though where you can kind of get around it. You know, not every relationship is the same. But as a general rule, you don't want to be in that position where she's talking to you about her dating life, her work life, her parents. That's a little different. You can kind of, you can kind of be her de facto boyfriend, especially if you have your own shit together. Cause that's a big thing too. Like if you know that you are a viable candidate, like if you aren't lacking in self-esteem, that really helps these relationships too. Like, and I've actually found to be honest, this is going to sound really shallow. But I found that like some of the easiest relations, the easiest platonic friendships I've been able to maintain have been people who are kind of on par with my own, you know, I, they're, kind, they're, kind, they're people who are, I don't know, like, like kind of close to my own level of uh, attractiveness, I guess. I don't know. I'm trying to find a better way to put it, but like, because that could be, I mean... That doesn't mean that attractive people have to hang out with attractive people. I mean, ugly people can hang out with ugly people, whatever. But I I think there is something to that when there isn't too much of a divide there. Like if you're an in-shape guy who's average looking or people consider you good looking or, you know, you just, you have your shit together. You're not desperate. You have no self-esteem issues. Like, Like you can be friends with a girl who is equal to you in that regard And I think it's easier, like, even though somebody might look at that from the outside and say like, oh, they're both, they're like mirror images of each other. They're like the male and female version of each other. Why don't they just get together? Oh, I bet they secretly fuck. People do that all the time. And people did that to me when I was hanging out with, you know, a friend of mine all the time. And it was always strictly platonic to this day. It's it's always been strictly platonic. There were rumors going around about us. 
And I, again, like I don't even participate in these communities, but she did because like people saw her with this guy. They started to spread rumors that, oh, they're secretly banging. And they talk, they, they, people talk so callously. She's fucking him. They don't, they have, they have no, um, the language of today, it has, it has no subtlety. People would say that about us. I don't know that it came up more than a couple times, but still, like, I heard about it, where they're like, oh, yeah, they're banging. That's what they say. They said they're banging. He was banging her. They're fucking. It, they always use the most crass version. And in this case, it wasn't even true. And I get it. Like, there is something natural in us. Like, if I see a guy and a girl out together, I think the same thing. I'm not faulting people for thinking that. But it's just, you can see where it's like, it's difficult to do that. But I do feel like it's it, it benefits when that person doesn't see, like, I I guess what I'm getting at just to sum up this convoluted point is just that like, if one person is significantly more attractive than the other person, that can create huge issues. That can create a one-sided, unrequited love sort of situation much easier than if the two people are kind of on the same level, if they're kind of peers. It doesn't have to be that way. I just think that it adds a little bit of ease to it because even though somebody from the outside might be like, well, they're both equally attractive, that must mean they can't resist the urge to, to do it. I think that actually helps you, you know, form a balance too. I mean, it makes for a more balanced relationship. And even then you have to tread carefully and you have to tread very carefully when they're dating somebody. You have to respect that and not give that guy any reason to be jealous of you, but also not overcompensate and fawn over him either. Cause I've had guys, I've had girlfriends, friends do that to me before. And even though I knew nothing was going on between them, I could tell that that guy was putting on a show. Like he probably had feelings for my girlfriend and was trying really hard not to let me know. But guess what? The thing that you try the hardest not to do often becomes the thing that you communicate. <laughs> so when a guy goes up to you and it's like, oh yeah, like I'm finally meeting uh, Mike. Oh, I've heard so much about you. Oh, because you know how girls will do that. They'll compliment each other's shoes or their hair or something. Guys will do that too in their own way. What I like though is I've met, I've been in situations like that where we immediately kind of exchange jokes. That to me is always the the best sign in the world. When, if you meet a, a girl, a female friend's new significant other, and he knows that you're close to her, if you and him immediately just start joking around, that is almost always the best. And I, I've actually made good friends with, uh, female friends, boyfriends through that way. I mean, I'm still, there's one of them where I haven't seen him in a long time, but I still consider him a really good friend because he, he wasn't worried about me. He just immediately understood that like, I'm close to his girlfriend, but, uh, you know, he doesn't have to worry about me. And I, I know this sounds like me being like, I'm so perfect. I'm so perfect. I just, I never, I never make anybody feel upset and blah, blah, blah. I, do, I make tons of people feel upset, but I'm just saying this is something I've had to learn. I've had to learn all this. And I do feel like I've hopefully reached a point where I don't, I, I, I don't make 
these people jealous or something if, if you're in that situation. Anyway, Stu, let's get away from this. But I just see couples these days like becoming more and more the same where they do all the same things. There's no his and hers. Like when they use the internet, they go to the same websites. They're seeing what each other says. Increasingly, like if a guy does go out on the town with his friends or he's hanging out with his male friends, he's getting texts from his girlfriend and there's some obligation to answer them. So really, he's under his girlfriend's supervision at all times, and it goes both ways. There are controlling men who do this. But I do think these... I do think there is something more feminine about everything I'm talking about here. I believe there is something more feminine about messaging your messaging your significant other when they're not around you. And sometimes that's really sweet and fun. Other times it's obnoxious and invasive. And it takes away from friendship. Like, I mean, it's awful hanging out with a guy and he's just answering his girlfriend's text messages every other second. And I've heard the worst justifications in the world. I, had a, I knew a guy who he would be like, oh, I'm so sorry. But, you know, like we have we just have this relationship where we 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 need to, we do this. You know, it's, it's a matter of trust and it's a matter of like blah, 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 blah. tell your tell yourself whatever you want. But I think there's something more feminine about that is just the idea of like sending text messages. Sending like knocking that ping pong ball across the room and asking that it be knocked back. And people get really worried and upset. Somebody was telling me about a situation a couple months ago, a friend of mine, where his girlfriend went on a, out on a, a night out on the town and stopped messaging him at a certain point. And naturally, your mind goes all kinds of horrible places. Because we do kind of live in that world now where you're kind of hitting the ping pong ball back and forth. And if you don't hit that ball back in time... Someone thinks something bad happened. But before someone thinks, oh, I hope I hope there wasn't an accident. What they're first thinking is, I hope that he didn't meet another girl. I hope she didn't meet another girl. Controlling boyfriends do this, too. Of course, I'm being fair here. But so it's like social media is this space where you're under the watchful eye of women. When you go out without your girlfriend, you're expected to kind of like update her. You're expected to kind of let her know what's going on. And that in turn creates this reciprocal codependent relationship where you both do that to each other. And maybe you started it, but either way, that's what's going on. You have to get messages and get back to her messages. And then you worry that, oh, if I didn't get back to her message in time, is she going to be secretly mad at me? Is she going to retaliate in some other way? Oh, if I don't do what she wants, is she going to flirt with other guys? Because that's the thing, too. It's like you're sitting there with your phones. And at any moment, there's this device sitting in your pocket. It's in your pocket. It's on the table in front of you. And at any single moment, a rival, a rival male could message your girlfriend. At any single moment, she has a device with her where she can receive attention from another male, whether she wants it or not. Oftentimes they don't want it. And when you hear your girlfriend's phone buzzing, I'm not even a particularly jealous person, but even I've felt this where it's like late at night and your girlfriend's phone is getting a lot of messages or a lot of notifications. You hear it and she's preoccupied with it. And you're, you're watching a movie with her or you're, you're trying to do something together 
and she keeps looking at it. And I think maybe one time I said, who is it? And if she says a guy's name, how can your mind not be upset? How can you not be, even if, even if there's nothing to be worried about, you just naturally are going to default to being upset. But just the, the idea that whether she wants it or not, she has this device on her and you have it on you. But I'm talking from my point of view, a male point of view. And at any moment in time, a, another man could message her. And, then, and if you're getting on dating websites, that's the reality of dating websites where, oh, wow, like I swiped right and I, I matched. I matched with a woman. Oh, she's messaging me. Guess what? How many guys is she messaging? And not because she's a, a slut. It's not slutty for a girl on Tinder to be talking to multiple guys. It's just that she has a bunch of suitors. You're one of many suitors, and you might be the one she prefers. It's not, I don't say this to be like, because I mean, honestly, if guys could get, I mean, every guy I know, a bunch of guys I know were on Tinder this summer. I haven't been on Tinder in like seven, eight years or something, seven years, but um, I haven't been on Tinder in seven, it's been seven years, two days, and 26 hours since I've been on t- on Tinder. But a, a bunch of friends of mine were on Tinder over the summer, and a couple of them are good-looking guys. You know, it's like a, a couple, a couple of them, uh, <laughs> a couple of them aren't. No, but uh, a couple of them, like are, I would say, are you know above average. Oh, that does that that makes me gay, because I I, I can tell if another man is aesthetically appealing in a general sense. Oh, it must mean I'm gay. That's always funny to me. Like when men are so insecure that they can't recognize, like you put George Clooney next to, um, who, what's a good example? Like you put like George Clooney next to Jonah Hill, who isn't even the ugliest guy in the world or anything, but like you put George Clooney up against Jonah Hill and ask a straight man, which guy is more handsome? If he says, I don't, I can't tell. I'm not gay, so I can't tell if George Clooney or Jonah Hill is more handsome. You know that that guy's secretly gay because he's so insecure that he can't just admit. Even if it's not his own feeling, he knows that society perceives Georgie Clooney as the the more handsome of the two. So it's always funny to me when guys are insecure about just recognizing, like, objective. It's like... Do you have a problem recognizing like when when a building is more aesthetically appealing to another building? Oh, I'm not I'm not an architect, so I don't know which kind of architecture is more appealing than another. You don't have to be gay to know that George Clooney is more attractive than Jonah Hill. But anyway, a couple of my friends like I would say they're above average in the looks department, but even then they said they're not getting much response. You know, they're probably getting more of a response than the average person but they're not getting a response. And like, I've had a couple of women friends show me not just their Tinder accounts, but social media. And they're constantly getting messages from men. A really close friend of mine who I've spent a lot of time with in the last year, she'll just mention to me, she's like, oh, this guy started messaging, guys she doesn't even know. Like guys she doesn't, she's never even met who live in town will just message her and be like, hey, what's up? You want to talk? <laughs> you know, I've never, I don't think I've ever done that. Uh, I think I've, I, I've, I've asked a woman out before through Facebook a long time ago, a girl I met once in person. And then I found her on there and was like, Hey, do you want to go get a drink? 
She was like, I'm engaged. It's like, oh, okay. Uh, but, uh, you know, like, like, I mean, there's guys who are just messaging and, and I mean, this is more than one woman. Like this is a close friend of mine that I, I spend a lot of time with these days, but I was amazed to see like, and, and on, if she gets on Tinder, she's just, it's nonstop. You know, she said this to me. She said one day we were talking about it and she was like, yeah, you know, well, like when you're on Tinder, every, everything's, a, everyone's a match. And I was like, huh? And she goes, yeah, like if I swipe right on any single guy, it matches. And that blew my mind. Because that means that every single one of those guys had already swiped right for her. Every single one of those guys had already swiped right, which means that she knew that any single guy that she looks at on there, if she swipes right too, it's going to be a match because all of them swiped right for her. That's incredible. As a guy, like I was only on there for a brief time many years ago, but it was difficult. It was extremely disheartening. It made you feel worse. I felt worse being on there. You say a Tinder prayer and you're like, please, please, I'm going to load this app. Please, God, I just want to meet a woman. I just want to meet a woman who I just want her to be cool and for her to like me and for, for, for me not to find anything absolutely horrible about her looks. I just hope she's not super ugly, and I hope she's kind of cool. Please, God. You know, that's what you say. You do this prayer when you get on those websites, and I always just felt extremely disheartened and disgusted, and it's not even a controlling or jealousy thing, but I didn't like that there was a, that you just know that you're one of many suitors, and you're having to impress her the most or give across the coolest vibe. I didn't like feeling like I was a part of that competition. I didn't like feeling like I was one of several competing suitors. And I've never been in that situation in my life. I, like in the flesh, I've never been, you know, aside from like a weird affair that I was involved in, you know, I've never been part of any kind of weird love triangle or that internet, the succubus from the internet way back when. I've never been part of something aside from that, though, where like, like I've never gotten a girlfriend through competition by being the clown with the funniest antics. And on Tinder, like, you have to be that. Or she has to find you attractive enough from your pictures or something. Or she, you have to be cool enough or interesting enough. But either way, you know that there are many different suitors. And while she's the only person you've matched with in five days, every single thing she swipes could be a potential match. And yeah, that's going to vary. Maybe not every woman matches with every single person they swipe right on, but that blew my mind. Just the fact that, oh yeah, every single person just about that she could potentially swipe is going to match with her because they've already swiped for her. And a, a, a male friend of mine told me he swipes um, right on every woman. He swipes right on every single woman, even if he's not interested in them, just to kind of expand his range, just to open possibility. So that also blew my mind that he swipes right on every woman because the chances of one of them matching are so low. And he's an interesting guy. He's not a bad looking guy. But even then, he's kind of, you know, desperate. You know, he's kind of desperate to match. And so that just kind of shows you the dynamic that's at play. And people did studies like back when OkCupid was the main website. You know, people did these studies where they created a woman account, like a guy would create a woman account and write an article about what he experienced. And it was exactly that. It was like you would get tons and tons of messages every day, tons and tons of page views. Whereas like when I was on OkCupid for a short time, 
if you get one woman to even look at your profile, especially a decently attractive woman, your day is made. So there's definitely an imbalance. And you don't need to make any kind of judgment about it. It's just the reality. It's just the reality of the situation. But I do believe that men are, are more than anything looking for a confidant. And I think that's what's lacking with people today. Like what I was saying about my friends not feeling like they can really be open around their girlfriends. I think they feel like they're lacking a confidant. Not somebody to make offensive jokes to. Not somebody to offend. Because the thing is, in our climate of censorship, in our climate of compelled and controlled speech, and increasingly bizarre standards for what you can and can't say, it's not just that the really offensive things are off the table. It's that it constricts everything else, and you never actually know what's going to upset somebody. You never know anymore what your girlfriend just read on Twitter. You never know like what article her friend just shared. And even if you have a loyal girlfriend, like even if she's not going to, even if she's fine with you believing what you believe or being who you are, you know, there's a social dynamic and women respond to other people's perceptions of you. Like, I think I mentioned the story on here. I was hanging out with, with two female friends years ago drinking and they were, you know, they were getting a little bit tipsy and they were talking about this guy that one of them had just broken up with. And he was a successful guy. He had a skill slash profession that made him very successful. And he traveled the world for this. Um, I don't want to give details, but it's like a hobby that can also be a profession. And she made a comment, though, after they broke up and she was talking about like all these issues with him. She was like, you know what? I should have known when I saw that his follower account was so low on Instagram. She's like, and, sh and there was a sincerity to her voice. Like, it's something that she might not have said sober, but there was a sincerity to her voice where she said, I should have known when I saw that his follower account was so low, considering, like, how successful he is. And I was like, wow. I didn't judge her for that. I still don't judge her for that. Is that shallow? Yes, it is. Am I shallow? Yes, I am. You know, we're all shallow people. You know, it doesn't mean that there's not depth in addition to the shallowness. You can be both shallow and deep. Every pool, <laughs> every pool has a shallow end and a deep end. Come on. You don't have to be one or the other. You know, I'm shallow and I'm, I'm shallow and I'm deep. That's my other hot topic shirt. My two hot topic shirts are freedom, freedom in quotes. And I'm shallow and I'm deep. I'm shallow and I'm deep. I'm shallow and I'm deep. Shallow and I'm deep. Um, but her comment, you know, she's not a shallow person. I know I, this person rules which makes it that much more significant. When someone who you have a very high opinion of says something that you might find kind of disagreeable or shallow, it shouldn't make you judge that person. It should make you think, somebody who I respect came to this conclusion or naturally feels this way. And I, I think in this case, it, it was something that she naturally felt. I think, it's, I think that women evaluate men, not entirely, but partly based on what other people think of them. And I think men do it too. I mean, here, my experience with this is that sometimes when I was in school, like there were a lot of pretty girls, 
you know, there were a lot of pretty girls that I went to school with that I grew up with. We weren't lacking pretty girls. Maybe I'm biased. Maybe I think Kirkland water makes for prettier women. It's in the water. It's that Costco. It's the fact that Costco, women are prettier in Kirkland. But you know what? That's true because after high school, my friend was renting an apartment in another town and we would party there. I would drive up. I'd moved down to Olympia, but I would drive up and we would party at his apartment. His, one of my friends got an apartment. You got to celebrate that right after high school. And he had these Jamaican guys living in the building who were a little older than us, but they were, I've talked about them before because we watched it with them and we smoked, they couldn't smoke weed because of their work visas, but we smoked weed in front of these Jamaicans and watched it with them. And one of the Jamaicans was really, he, he was really inquisitive and he went around the room asking us, this is when like the Michael Jackson stuff was still in the news. And he goes, what's your opinion? on?" So I, I, I've never done a Jamaican accent. What's your, what's your opinion of Michael Jackson? What's your opinion of Michael Jackson? What's your opinion of Michael Jackson? You know, he, he went around the room and he asked, he, he, he didn't just go, and you, and you, each time he, 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 he said the question from start to finish to each of us. And then he went around the room and he goes, when's the last time you had sex? When's the last time you had sex? When's the last time? And it, it wasn't a gay thing. They were, I mean, they had been in the U.S. and hadn't been with a woman and they weren't practicing celibacy. So it was like, I think they were really hard up. They were you know, in the U.S. surrounded by all these pretty women, but they would ask us like, where are all the pretty girls? Where are all the pretty girls? You know, and one of them volunteered. I don't even think they knew. They didn't even know we were from Kirkland. And one of them said, I heard uh, Kirkland's where the pretty girls are. And so Kirkland has a reputation. There were a lot of pretty girls there. The Jamaicans heard a rumor about it. These guys who came from Jamaica, lived in my friend's apartment building, watched us smoke weed and watched it with us, asked us about Michael Jackson, asked us when the last time we had sex was. Even they heard the rumor that girls in Kirkland are pretty, and I stand by it. I stand by that. The girls, at least when I lived in Kirkland, there were a lot of pretty girls. School had a lot of pretty girls. But anyway, my point, my point is that I noticed that all the guy, like, it's almost like there's something about Mary. Like, when that movie came out, I was like, oh, that's a real phenomenon. Like, there's something about Mary. Where in school, like in seventh grade, when everybody had, everybody was going through or had just gone through puberty, every, every guy had a crush on the same girl. And it was usually a girl who was very beautiful. But there were other girls who were beautiful, too. And it wasn't necessarily charisma. Like everybody decided, like I, I was talking to one of my childhood friends a couple of weeks ago about this, where everybody, every single guy in seventh grade liked this one girl. Her name was Brittany. And she, she was honestly stunningly beautiful. She was tall. She had no personality. She had no charisma. But it wasn't purely sex. It was like at that age, nobody's having sex. Nobody's even really kissing in most cases. People are barely holding hands. Most kids, at least. And so it wasn't even like a, a purely sexual thing. It was just like, she's beautiful. But it was almost like the fact that every guy was directing his attention to her made every guy want her even more. It was like, it's like I've said about womanizers, where womanizers aren't just doing it for sexual gratification. That's a part of it. But womanizers womanize to express dominance over other men. It's why womanizers like to screw people's girlfriends. Womanizers like to have sex with people's wives because they're expressing dominance over a man. So in that way, being a womanizer is actually gay because you're doing it because of other men. You're motivated by other men. You heard it here, folks. Womanizing is gay. Um, 
being able to recognize that George Clooney is handsome, not necessarily gay. Womanizing, kind of gay. And that's perfectly okay. It's perfectly okay that womanizing is gay. But anyway, you know, so womanizing is kind of gay in that way. And men are kind of gay too in the sense that they all get attracted to the same girl in part because they're all, because other men are attracted to her. It's for the same reason that like, it's for the same reason that, that bullshit becomes a collector's item. Like it's for the same reason that like if enough people direct their attention onto a rock, somebody else will go, you know what? That rock is actually really cool. And it might be a great rock, but they're responding to the fact that other people covet that rock. We covet what other people covet. So with this girl in seventh grade, no matter how beautiful she was, there was really no reason, even if it's, even if it's pheromones, even if people saw her, even if there's some biological component where she gave off a certain pheromone, I believe it was social in part social. I believe that those guys could have chosen any girl. There were so many pretty girls, man. I look back on that and I'm just like, man, I, I took that for granted. I took for granted that I went to a place every day where I was guaranteed to not just see pretty girls, but pretty girls who wanted to strut their stuff. You know, I feel grateful that I grew up. Here's me being a perv, but I feel grateful that I grew up during the era of low rise pants and thongs because you just like go around the computer lab and you couldn't even look anywhere without seeing that. And it's like the fact that like that pervy part of me, that, that little pervy, that, that inner pervert could go to this place. And it, but again, it's not even it's not even perverted. It's just exciting. <laughs> it's, it's not perverted. It's just exciting. But just like growing up during that era, like I'm grateful for that because I'm like, that was a good era. And then somebody growing up today would be like, well, I'm, I'm grateful that I grew up during the era of yogi pants. I mean, I think that sometimes, you know, maybe I'm. You know, maybe I'm being a, little, a bit lecherous here, but like I'll go out in public and like I'll think like, man, it, it rules living during the era where women just wear yoga pants around. You know, I'm, I'm stating the obvious, but it's pretty cool. Uh, but anyway, though, it's like that was the thing about school, though, is it's like you're in a place surrounded by beautiful women every day and they're all trying to assert that they're all trying to show off. That's pretty cool. um but uh but yeah it's it's uh you know pretty girls what am i talking about i got distracted here i got into a a lechery tailspin i don't know let's just return to the idea of a confidant i think that's what the men i know are looking for more than sex more than arm candy and not a best friend. They're not looking for themselves. I don't know any men who are looking for a girl who's exactly like them. Because, the, you know, the biggest trap in the world is a girl who has all of your exact same interests. It's cool that you need some. Like, I've learned this over time. I've made this mistake where I've dated girls that have, where I have no actual common interests, no common ground. And I used to think that that was the right path because it was just total his and hers. It's not. It's not right. You you end up they don't they they're missing a vital component. 
they're missing some sort of vital component when it comes to just understanding who you are if they have zero clue about anything you're into. But I, I mean, it's, it's pretty, I'm pretty lenient with that. I'm very lenient with it because I think there's also a certain doom when a woman shares all of your interests, especially because I'm such a psychopath about my interests and I'm so opinionated about them that it's like I will un- inevitably either be an asshole or I will have to censor my opinion, which, yeah, you have to do in a relationship. But still, anyway, just, uh, you know, I, th- I think there's a certain doom to having too much in common, but there's a definite doom to having nothing in common. But I think you need to have like your his and hers. You need to have your separate sinks. People seem to think that those separate sinks in the master bathroom are, they really matter. You know, uh, do you need to use the same sink? But that's kind of the era we're in where it's like, why don't we just use the same sink? Why don't we just, why don't we just be the same person? All of our hobbies have to be the same. All of our interests have to be the same. All of our opinions have to be the same. We have to vote the same. We have to feel the same way about everything. Increasingly, I see that pattern and what you end up with, what, what's the lowest common denominator in that situation? Because in that situation, both people end up sacrificing a lot of who they truly are. And that's what, when you end up prioritizing Netflix. The lowest, when you're in a situation where you're expected to become homogenous and that, that merging of two people, which would normally take place in the form of having a child or starting a household, that merging of you would normally be spiritual and biological because you'd be producing a family. And I understand not everybody can have kids. I'm not talking about them. I'm talking about people who can procreate, who want to join forces. They, they um, would normally merge in the form of having children, producing a hybrid of the, the two of them. They would have a household. And that household is the sum of all of their parts, you know, and when you remove that from the equation, though, and I'm someone who might never have children, I'm not really as traditional as I am in some ways, I'm very non-traditional in others. And I don't know if a strange virgin alien monk, you know, I'm doing this, I'm doing this for the benefit of the virgin alien monks who will hear this in the future. And I'm not, I'm, I'm probably more like them in some ways now. But uh, <laughs> where am I going? Any, anyway, like, uh, you know, I, I don't know that that's the life for me is what I'm put, uh, what I'm getting at here. I don't know that I am destined to have children and start a household and have a wife. I don't know if that's my path. It doesn't feel it doesn't call to me right now, but I'm not I'm not ruling it out. I'm not going to be one of these people who says I'll never have, have kids. And then a year later is like, hey, everybody. Uh, Sandy is is six months pregnant. You know, I don't want to be one of those people. I never want to rule anything out. But anyway, most people, though, benefit and deep down want that. Most people want to start a family. Most people want to go through that process that created us and continues to create us. Most people want to do that, and they want to do so securely. But when you don't have those priorities, when you don't have a family, when you don't have a household to think about, 
the lowest common denominator between you takes precedent. Because, oh, you like this music, she likes this music. And even though couples are fine with like going to a concert by a band they don't like to humor somebody, it's still kind of a little bit of a burden. I mean, I, I, I never like going to things that I don't like. <laughs> I never like going to events that I don't like. It's true, though. Um, but these couples becoming increasingly homogenous, increasingly trying to be each other, this pressure to be the same, you end up reverting to the lowest common denominator, which is, yeah, like finding a show that you can both tolerate on Netflix and binge watching it. And that's great. There's nothing wrong with doing that, but that becomes your main thing. Your main thing is choosing which Asian restaurant to order takeout from and and which show to binge watch on Netflix. And when people stray from that, it causes tension. Because there's, there's this increasing pressure to be the same. And because you don't have anything else, there's nothing else going on to distract you from that. So that becomes your world. Your world becomes Netflix. Your world becomes food and Netflix and sometimes sex. Although from what, from what I gather, a lot of people aren't having... For as sex positive as, as millennials and the Zomers are, Studies show, experts say that they're having less sex. Like, they're saying that Zomers are less sexually active than millennials. And and one of the big things in the late 2000s, the first decade of the 2000s, studies were coming out that millennials were having much less sex than Gen Z or Gen X. Gen X. And you know what? Gen X was said to be having less sex than their predecessors. So it's like, you know, birth rates are dropping and all that. So it's like people are having less sex anyway. And I've mentioned on here before, like as somebody who used to spend a lot of time walking home from bars in the middle of the night, and for that matter, like I used to just walk around at night a lot more in heavily populated areas during the summer, windows would be open. I never heard people having sex. I wasn't seeking it. I don't, I don't want to hear people have sex. I'm prudish in that way, but you barely ever hear them have sex. Like I had a girlfriend who lived in a house with like four roommates and like a couple times I heard one of the roommates, you know, having sex with somebody. I didn't like it. It felt it made me feel uncomfortable, honestly, but I'm a prude. What can I say? But uh, it's amazing how little, as somebody who's been in a lot of situations where I should have heard people having sex, I don't hear it very often. And... Uh, But anyway, like what I was going to get at is like for as many young people who are preaching this sex positivity, slut walk, polyamory, it's a big show. And you know what? Those girls, they're not like, they're, they're all trying to give the image that they're these hardened succubi. They're mostly nerdy girls who got dissatisfied with our toxic I gotta get away from that word. They're mostly nerdy girls who are as sickened by our sewer of a culture as anyone. But because they ended up in these girls clubs, these heavily politicized girls clubs, these Tumblr websites, what's going on in academia, and there's more women in academia too, which isn't a surprise, the fact that they would be particularly susceptible to some of these ways of thinking. And here I am the one saying, everybody's brainwashed. Oh, everybody's getting brainwashed. But 
you know, I do think there's something to like these women form their own more insular communities and those communities got heavily politicized and they created what we're seeing today. And what we're seeing today is a lot of girls who would otherwise be very nerdy and maybe even prudish feeling the need to broadcast their sexuality to everybody. But many of them, they're not even quote unquote slutty. They don't even really, they engage in this intellectual game, this academic game of broadcasting human sexuality, but they're not even really that, they're not even participants in it. And yeah, you have an increase in OnlyFans and cam girls. You have an increase in girls doing that, but that's detached. That's some weird form of metasexuality. And having known many of these women, like having known women who are kind of part of this whole thing, it seems like they really want to tell you, I'm a succubus. I am a succubus. And to them, that seems liberating. But having interacted with real succubi who aren't actually demons, they're just damaged women. They are trapped in a prison. They're not liberated. That woman who I had a weird thing with on the internet when I was 15 and it turned out she, she used the screen name Succubus and she had all these guys she was manipulating. She wasn't free. I mean, you can say part of that's the dishonesty, which is true. You know, somebody could say, well, in a polyamorous relationship, everybody knows, everybody knows that everybody's getting involved with everybody else. But, but still, it's the same, the same uh, behavior is playing out. And within that, though, is a prison. Like, the women I've known who actually exhibit the traits of a succubi are trapped in a dark prison where they, it's this, they're caught up in a, a very narrow hallway. Their life is very restricted. There are so many different relationships and politics to consider. And even if they're not outright lying and being deceptive, they're still now dealing with so many different intersecting relationships and intersect that kind of when you combine a bunch of different intersecting relationships with jealousy with sex with attention it's a recipe for disaster and so on top of all that though i feel like these young women today who have become liberated and they've taken on the current political ideology they're role-playing as succubi, but they're not actually succubi. And it turns out the succubi themselves aren't even really succubi. And I, I just, I don't know, I think that they, it, it's, they're getting themselves unnecessarily twisted up. And then when they meet a man, and that's the weird thing too, is, you know, so many women I know, like, I mean, this is just a cliche, but it's like, so many women I know identify as bisexual, but only date men. Like, maybe they've hooked up with a girl here or there. And, I mean, I'm not trying to do the whole, like, lesbian until graduation cliche. Although, although there's a reason that's a cliche. But uh, it's, it's a weird phenomenon. Like, a lot of girls in town here, there's a lot of social pressure in Olympia, Washington, to be a, a bisexual. If you're a woman, there's a lot of pressure to identify as bisexual. And they might be. Many of them might be. But what's so fascinating about it is that they largely have relationships with men, overwhelmingly. They overwhelmingly date men. And in my experience, 
I'm not trying to out anybody I know, but the women I know who identify as bisexual have a tendency to be bisexual only on Tinder or when they're announcing it publicly. I mean, it allows them to identify with the LGBTQ. It allows them to become more of a minority. So it's politically advantageous. And they seem, but when it comes to actually beyond like the, the identifying that way, beyond identifying as a bisexual or a pansexual, when it comes to actually acting on that, Unless they're keeping a lot of secrets, which they might be. Maybe they haven't shared that with me. I don't know. But most of what they do is they identify as bisexual on Tinder and they flirt with other girls on Tinder while they're looking for a boyfriend. Does that mean they're not bisexual? Not necessarily, but it shows you what they're looking for. They might be bi. They might find girls attractive. But I can tell you that like... I know that George Clooney is handsome, but if I were to hop on Tinder, I'm not going to, I'm not going to identify as bisexual and flirt with guys who look like George Clooney while I'm looking for a woman. There are probably guys who do that. I'm not saying bisexuality isn't real, but I'm just saying that's a core difference. And I sometimes wonder if women are confusing that innate ability to recognize attractiveness, regardless of your own orientation. I wonder if they confuse that or get that twisted up with actually finding that person romantically or sexually attractive. Like, do you actually deeply find women sexually and romantically attractive? Or do you just recognize when a woman is attractive and feel like this pressure in today's world to kind of turn that into something it's not. I'm not even trying to make a a declaration about this. This is my own lived experience observing this in a town where this is prevalent, on the West Coast where this is prevalent. Because there is a social component to all of this. In the same way that men can all choose to have a crush on the same girl simply because other men have that crush, when there is social reinforcement that can create things out of thin air or that can take things that, where there's only traces of something and that can blow it up and amplify it. And when I see young women thinking that they need to act like little succubi, it doesn't come across as honest. It, it just doesn't come across as honest to me. So, uh, wow, this is a long one. This is a long one, a good one for Friday. Got a lot of material here. I don't know if I'll keep this up or what. Hopefully I make interesting points. I hope that people, you know, I hope people give me the benefit of the doubt. That's all I want. And my, my goal is never to dunk on somebody. Sometimes. If I'm joking, like sometimes... You know, sometimes I'll go on. You know, sometimes I, I will dunk on people, as they say. I don't like that term, dunking. Oh, he's dunking on them. I don't like basketball. I don't dunk on people. I throw footballs at their nose. I throw a spiral football. I throw, I throw it right at their nose. No, but I try not to do that. I, I do hope that this is a productive discussion. Because I pay attention. And I want the best. I do. I truly want the best for people. 
And I don't think anybody can argue the point that things are very twisted up. People are very twisted up. They have a lot of ideas in their head, and they don't know what to do with them. And they're being introduced to new ideas all the time. And the really sad thing about it is the way that new ideas are being introduced to people are at gunpoint. We are hostages to new ideas. Nothing good has ever come from that. Nothing good has ever come from being a hostage to a new idea. You force people. You threaten people. You ostracize people. And so people are being introduced to new ideas, but they're being introduced to new ideas with this added pressure of, if you don't agree with this, if you don't immediately adopt this, well, your reputation might be destroyed. And, you know, people like Jonathan Haidt have, have done research into this, into what's going on with teenagers and social media. And what they've discovered is that because overt, because there has been this sort of feminization, I don't think he said that word, but because there has been this sort of feminization of social media and feminization of, of public interaction, which again has its pluses and negatives. Sometimes men need to be brought back down to earth and this, not everything is war, dude. I have to be reminded of that. I need to be reminded sometimes not everything is a simulation of warfare, dude. So I think that women bring something very valuable to the table, obviously. <laughs> women, women are here. Women are on planet earth for a reason, guys. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, when, uh, you know, with this being held hostage by new ideas, you're expected to believe it or adopt it or your reputation will be destroyed. And what Jonathan Haidt found and what others have found is that that is a, a largely feminine trait. When men are left to their own devices, they're far more likely to engage in open conflict. It might not be physical, but they're more likely... It's like what I was talking about with message boards, where men on message boards... Hey, Batty, let's get you a message board. I think you, I think you need a message board where you can express that. Um, but when, when men were on message boards, from the time that I first went to message boards, nobody was being, quote-unquote, fake nice. Nobody was fake nice on message boards. There were nice people, but there was nobody being nice because you're supposed to be. There were no rules, so you just, you would argue, you would make fun of each other, you would joke about other things, you would talk. It was, it was a spectrum, but still, there was, the conflict was all out in the open. No, none of the men on message boards were plotting against other men behind the scenes. Some of them were. But as a general rule, men weren't doing that. But with social media becoming heavily feminized, we see that, th that there is a trend toward appearing nice, but there's all kinds of things going on behind the scenes. I found out that there's a group chat. I mean, this is, this is the stuff that you learn by having women friends is like there's a group chat in town here where they all let each other know about men. Like women who don't even know each other. Like who knows how many women are on this list? I don't think this is a conspiracy because I think this is rooted. I think there's a re like the reason for this group chat is because... They want people to know about abusers, rapists. They want people to know about bad guys. But the definition of a bad guy has shifted. 
And so you can only imagine, I have no idea, I've never seen this list, so I'm not going to assume, but you can only imagine how that list could be abused. And so that itself is a form of what I'm talking about, where there are men, some of them probably deserved, no doubt deserved, but there are men who are secretly having their reputations destroyed on social media, probably by people who are on their friend list, people who are observing them. So that's pretty fascinating. And then that happens between women more than anything. You want to talk about rep because I mean, that's what those studies showed. You know how much I love studies, but still, I believe this is anecdotally true from my own experience. And studies show it as well that, you know, there's a far greater tendency among teenage girls to destroy each other's reputations while appearing to be friends. And I think that's reflected in today's internet, although people are so openly hostile. You know, people are just openly hostile too. We can't, it's not that everything's below the surface, but I don't know. Just some ideas. Just some ideas that shouldn't be controversial to talk about. And that's that's the point I always make. This isn't controversial. If somebody thinks the points I've made today are controversial, that is a manufactured controversy. It's a completely manufactured controversy because what I'm saying is not controversial. It, it's not mean-spirited. I'm just attempting to be honest because I think about these things and I believe there is value to expressing them honestly. This land is mine God gave this land to me This brave, this golden land to me And when the morning sun Reveals her hills and plains I see a land where children can run free So take